Hi everyone, future Brandon from the Editing Cave. I feel like I owe you a bit of an explanation of why you haven't seen an upload in a minute. TLDR, I got sick. It was not great, but even so, I was away from my editing tools for a while, so I just couldn't get to these episodes. Either way, that's why this sounds as outdated as it does. Hopefully you guys will either just roll with it or skip to the parts you like. Uh, episode 26 is already in the can, so keep an eye out for that very soon, along with a couple of other really cool surprises that we have in the works. So, without further ado, episode 25, thank you guys so much for tuning in as far as you have. And since you stuck around, here's a joke! probably running to theaters to go rewatch again and again and again until I have no more tears or until I need to eat something and then go do it again. Well, you can eat popcorn. You know what? I damn well can. And that is because <laughs> I am sponsored. Listen to this. That is popcorn, baby. We are the popcorn club over here. And welcome to Plot Devices episode 25. We've officially made it to our quarter life crisis, if you will. Who am I? I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my co host, who I believe is also at his quarter life crisis, to make the whole thing go around. Noah Guzman, how are you today? I am finally not on my parents' insurance. Hooray! I have my own insurance. Ah. Except that's not true, Brandon. I'm 23 years old, so I am definitely no. still on their insurance. So that's, that's amazing. Um, so happy to be recording episode 25. How does it feel, Brandon? I mean, we're 25 in. It feels amazing that you put up with me for this long, but also <laughs> that we've, but that we've been able to like curate this weird space where we just get together and talk movies and TV and every little thing in between. Uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure, hopefully 25 more. And this is a really cool milestone. Definitely. Let's get into the news for today. Uh, we've got a lot of new releases coming up, mostly theatrical stuff. Uh, Moon Knights just read the first two episodes. We're going to talk about that later on, but for now, uh, if you listened to our last episode, if we, if we didn't talk enough about it, we got to still talk about the Oscars. Uh, it's still in the news as of today. Uh, and it's a pretty big development. Uh, in the aftermath of the Will Smith, Chris Rock incidents that has sort of shaped the media sphere of movie journalism for the last couple of weeks, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences has officially rescinded Smith's inclusion to the Academy for the next 10 years. This essentially means Smith cannot vote for or attend any ceremonies until that decision is ended. That does include the tradition of presenting the Acting Academy Awards next year. Obviously, Anthony Hopkins presented it to him because he won last year. Smith now cannot do that. There has been questions of, you know, is there a runner-up? Will there be some other way of doing it? But Smith obviously cannot do it himself. Uh, This is the statement from the AMPAS regarding Smith. The board has decided for a period of 10 years from April 8th, 2022, Mr. Smith shall not be permitted to attend any Academy events or programs in person or virtually, including but not limited to the Academy Awards. In a public statement, uh, Smith said that he respects and accepts the Academy's decision. Uh, however, further demands came uh, when actor Harry Lennox actually wrote a t- column uh, asking for Smith to recuse his Oscar to, quote, restore his honor. This has led to a lot of backlash online and, again, only emphasizing the question of who was in the right about this whole situation. And, of course, many of Smith's projects have been put on hold or put on ice for the time being, including his uh, Fast and Loose movie for Netflix and a potential fourth Bad Boys movie. So there is a lot still going on with this. There's a lot of nuance still going on. Chris Rock has said um, he's still not going to press charges. He probably won't be talking about this until he, quote, gets paid. I believe that was from a Variety article. They commented on that uh, as a result. Noah, we obviously just wanted to get away from award season and award season has not been able to just get away from us because of this instance. What are your thoughts on this and a lot of the response online that you've seen? 
for one, it just comes as a shock that this is going to, you know, in the days leading up to it, I wasn't sure what to expect from the Academy on their stance uh, with Will Smith. Uh, just reading, you know, short articles here and there about conversations that happened, whether during the ceremony, talking about, you know, asking Smith to leave versus conversations happening afterward, um, where Smith is listening to what, what the repercussions of his actions are going to be. I mean, those 10 years you're going to feel, you know, every, every, time that award ceremony rolls around from what I've read from Will's side of things. Um, his reactions have been very accepting towards the Academy and respectful uh, regarding his award. I mean, I think that with the award is his, you know, there isn't, you know, giving back to it. It's, it's his. That is his Oscar that he won for his performance in isolation of any events because of that. And I mean, the conversation about like, yes, the Academy is given to far worse people, far worse times. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that photo going around of Harrison Ford went to deliver Roman Polanski's Oscar to him because he was convicted for being a pedophile and couldn't come to the United States. Like there's worse situations than that. Um, but as far as like the Harry Lennox comment, I get it. I get this is a whole situation of viewpoint versus what actually happened. Like you mentioned, Smith has seemed to be really respectful and really just welcoming about the decisions about this. Rock has been really reclusive to talk about it. And I think just that idea of it is we're blaming Smith for things that we don't want to acknowledge as the Academy. And I think that's kind of a shame. I want to pose this uh, question to you just before we move on really quickly. So the Academy doesn't release their ballots for votes. So we don't know who the actual runner up of any of these categories are. But like, let's say hypothetically it was, you know, Andrew Garfield, who was the runner up for this. Would you say, okay, the runner up gets to present best actress next year? Or would you just have the Academy bring in, you know, someone random? After mentioning that, Brandon, that that seems like it 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 could spark some um some interest even even in the smallest scale you know that will tune somebody else in uh and i think it still keeps it connected to the the traditional element which is like bringing in the previous winners to announce the new winner so in this case where somebody you know is is banned so they cannot approach it uh that's that's a creative alternative that I think still respects the legacy of these awards. So yeah, that, that would, that's actually a great, um, a great take. Who knows what we'll see next year. See, I'm all for that only because of the chaos it would inspire because the Academy has refused to release ballots. And I want to see what those ballots look like, like who gets the runner up every year. And I'm always curious about that. So maybe that is like the one crack in the armor to say, ah, oh, maybe the ballots could finally come out in the next couple of years or, you know, even the next 10 years or something like that. So Potentially, there's a lot of stuff around this that we could get into. We have other things to talk about, uh, specifically some pretty big topics in the world of actors retiring, one who is walking away due to a pretty deprecating illness. Uh, in case you guys not, have not heard, Bruce Willis has announced his retirement from acting uh, pretty early on. I believe he's only in his early 60s. I'll fact check back in a moment. Uh, but earlier this month uh, on his Instagram on his Instagram account, uh, his family basically posted a statement saying that he would be retiring due to complications from aphasia. If you are not familiar with that disease, the Mayo Clinic kind of describes it as Alzheimer's to a degree. Like it is one of those things that affects your ability to communicate. It affects speech and writing patterns. Uh, it affects your ability to understand uh, written and verbal languages. And the more it progresses, the more that you become sort of detached to those things of communication. And obviously that kind of hinders Willis's career. Uh, from Willis's Instagram post, this was a statement that his family and grooming uh, Demi Moore and Rumor Willis and all of them put out. Uh, to Bruce's amazing supporters, as a family, we wanted to share that our beloved Bruce has been experiencing some health issues and has recently been diagnosed with aphasia, which is impacting his cognitive abilities. As a result of this, and with much consideration, Bruce is stepping away from the career that meant so much to him. This is a really challenging time for our family, and we are so appreciative of your continued love, support, and compassion. We are moving through as a, as a strong family unit, 
and wanted to bring his fans in because we know how much he means to you as you do to him. As Bruce always says, live it up. And together we plan to do just that. Uh, for those of you who might be slightly under a rock, uh, Will career has spanned over 40 years. He's one of the biggest uh, moneymakers of at least the early, at least the late 20th century movie making, if not it's 21st century, uh, obviously starred as John McClane in the Die Hard movies, the Unbreakable series, Armageddon. And he is still set to star in a number of direct-to-video movies, uh, including with Michael Rooker in Collective Measures, which comes out at the end of this month, uh, April 29th. Again, really long-lasting, really diverse career if you actually look back on it. So, Noah, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, of course, this is really tragic to hear from such a star who, again, like Demi Moore and the family have said, means so much to so many moviegoers. What has Bruce Willis' filmography meant to you over the years? What do you think of this condition and what roles have really stood out to you in his career? Of course, one of my favorite roles of all time is going to be uh, Bruce Willis and Justin Long in uh, Live Free or Die Hard because that movie, that movie, I think, is just a, an, an example of action that I watched fair, like growing up and uh, tuned me into his movies following that. Like I remember going to see Red in theaters. Um, and wherever he pops up, he's just Willis is a table name. He's a household name that um, our parents have favorite movies from that we grew up and we see his name and we're familiarized with him because of just growing up with his face on our screen. So um, definitely a big name to be retiring or to be um, stepping away because of his um, his declining health right now. Uh, it's devastating. And I think that all I feel from the community and from, you know, fellow stars um, and anyone in that space is just sharing love, like just sending a lot of um, condolences to him and his family. And uh, I think that's very important just to see that, just to see all of this like support from everyone um, at times where like, you know, that's not always as visible as uh, the hate and the drama and the, you know, the, the negativity. So it, it, it's reassuring just to see all that support come from the community. But I think when it comes to Willis now, I'm more tuned into his pictures, like as an adult. And so if I see a new movie with him attached, uh, that does raise my interest, but some of the classics, I mean, yes, I've seen the sixth sense, um, but like Armageddon, you know, some other classic pictures, I haven't made it around to watching, uh, Brandon, do you have experience with, uh, Bruce Willis's early career work? And how did you think that shaped, like how you view him, uh, in the, in the Hollywood space? I mean, some of it. Yeah. I mean, Bruce Willis was always First of all, to a degree, I, I kind of compare him to like the Grateful Dead and rock music, where like for a while I just knew they were a thing, but I hadn't really delved into their substance or their work, so to speak. And then when I did, I was like, oh, I totally get why this meant so much to so many people. And with Willis, it was kind of the same thing. Like I didn't watch the first Die Hard until three years ago, something like that. Uh, and I loved it. I actually think it's maybe one of my favorite action movies. I think it's so really well paced and um, what John McTiernan and that whole team did is fantastic. And what Bruce Willis does as a performer there is obviously like the everyman kind of rugged sense of action heroism to him, but there's always, there was always that kind of softer side to his performances that I really appreciated. It's why I think Unbreakable is maybe his best performance. I truly think that movie is a masterpiece. And I think what Shyamalan was able to see in him, yes, with Sixth Sense and then going on to the, uh, the Israel trilogy with all those movies, like that's an inspired casting pick to take. You know, it, it would be like taking Arnold and putting him in like a Werner Herzog movie. Like it doesn't make sense on paper and then you do it and it makes all the sense in the world. Um, but obviously things like Moonrise Kingdom, I think he's wonderful. And then that kind of like more subtle, kinder turn in. I haven't seen a lot of his video on demand stuff, but I know that has a lot of fan base as well. We should also mention, uh, the Razzies, which for a long time have had a Bruce Willis, oh God, what are you doing kind of category? They recently rescinded that and apologized to Bruce Willis, which 
was probably the smart move. They should have done that a long time ago. But yeah, a really just eclectic filmography when you look at him beyond just the actual Hollywood stature of it all. And I think you mentioned, uh, you mentioned earlier a point about, you know, stars and the idea of what we hear and what we don't hear. I think the idea of a Bruce Willis who, yes, is a huge star and people know about, but specifically older generations. And I think the idea of coming to terms with your own health condition and knowing when to step inside, I think that speaks to a lot of where our society is right now in that, like, I don't think we would have heard this in, you know, 2010 or 2000, but in 2022, I think we're getting more stars who are willing to say like, no, like I have problems and I need to fix those. And I am willing to let my audience know who means, who I mean so much to let in on that conversation. So I think that's actually really interesting. And we're talking about these legends who are potentially, you know, stepping away from show business. And there's another one that we're actually going to be talking about, uh, not so much in the action space, but in the comedy space. Uh, Brandon, do you want to tell about the next story? This is slightly less sad, but sad if it is true. Uh, you can't quite tell if he's serious or not because of who he is, but he sounds like he's pretty serious about it. Uh, Jim Carrey recently did an interview with Access Hollywood in preparation for Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which we're going to be talking about later on in the show. And he made it pretty clear that he's fairly serious about retiring from acting. These are uh, his words in the actual interview. Well, I'm retiring. Yeah, probably I'm being fairly serious. It depends if the angels bring me some sort of script that's written in gold ink that says to me it's going to be really important for people to see. I might continue down the road, but I'm definitely taking a break. This is something you might never hear another celebrity say as long as time exists. I have enough. I've done enough. I am enough. Uh, Carrie, of course, is starring in Song of the Hedgehog 2 this week, which we're going to be talking about later. But his career spans, again, almost as long as Bruce Willis's. He starred in some seminal 90s and 2000s comedies, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, The Ace Ventura movies, The Cable Guy. Uh, and he's also made several dramatic turns. He's like The Truman Show, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He uh, recently popped up on Saturday Night Live as Joe Biden, and that got him in a lot of uh, recent acclaim, as well as the Sonic movies, where he kind of revolutionized the role of Dr. Robotnik. Uh, however... In this whole sense of, you know, Jim Carrey walking in the sunset, that's not the end of it, because Dolly Parton, of all people, has stepped up. She wants him to play uh, Porter Wagner, who is a country star who had a really successful duet period with uh, Dolly in the 60s and 70s. She is working on a biopic of her life, and she wants him to play Porter Wagner. Carrey has replied to his comments, simply just saying, I would always speak to Dolly. So there might be at least one more role. I like to think he'd come back as Robotnik one more time, but... Noah, over to you first. Uh, obviously, what do you think of the news? What do you think of, you know, Curious Tomography as a whole? And, like, is he deadly serious about this? I mean, maybe. Like, taking a look at Jim Carrey and all the freaking influence that man has thrown our way in, in the comedy space. Like, I'm thinking of Yes Man. I'm thinking of the, 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 the Grinch. Like, <laughs> it is so... It is so amazing what he's delivered on screen. And it's really just inspiring uh, for myself being like, like looking at somebody whose characters are always so uh, just <laughs> off the rails, but not like, like sometimes chaotic. Yes. But most of the time, just having a blast, like thinking of the Ace Ventura series and, and just a, a character who is always leaning into the hilarity and, um, for me, at least that that's always made me regard Jim Carrey as like one of the most entertaining faces, um, to have on a, on your screen. And I think that he's serious though. I think here he is recognizing his career and recognizing like the human element that he's sharing with, with us now, you know, uh, regarding your point with celebrities being kind of like taken down from this shelf of like immortality that they've lived on for so long. Now they can look at us and they can say, or now they can let society know the community know, Hey, I'm prepared to 
be adjusted here. That's incredibly honest. So I hope that he is serious because if he's teasing the if he's teasing the retirement, I mean that that can only, that only works once. You know, you can't do that again. Um, but I think that uh, there's so much work to be again inspired by that Carrie has provided. And um, if he says that he's good and he's you know he's had his fun in the space, then the best thing we could do is respect that and and let him do what he can. But if he comes back to work with Dolly Parton, who would miss that? I wouldn't. It seems like ever since Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Jim Carrey has been on this career path of like, yeah, I love comedy. And I love like being the oddball, look at me, like kind of comedian that, that he's always been, you know, even going back to like Living Color, which if none of you have watched Living Color, do it. It's phenomenal. He's amazing in it. Uh, Fire Marshal Bill, just look that up. Uh, but I think as far as like a career path goes, I think he has had this trajectory of like, maybe not Will Smith full blown of like, I need to get my Oscar, but to the point of like, I want to reestablish who I am as a performer. And I've always respected that about him, you know, even up until he was cast in Sonic. And I think he's great in Sonic. We'll get to that later. But I think the roles that he has picked in the last number of years have fascinated me in this kind of up and down of embracing the cariness of it all and then going to something else. And if he has decided that, you know what, I got that all in my system with, you know, Sonic and I love you, Philip Morris and SNL. If he's gotten that all of the system, I don't think he really has anything to lay it back for. Slight spoiler for Sonic 2. I really hope he comes back for Sonic 3 so we can complete the trilogy. I would, I didn't know this Dolly Parton movie was in the works. It totally makes sense. I would love to see him in this. I think he would totally fit into that role of, if you know any of the history of like 60s country, he could totally inhabit that in good and serious ways. But I think as a whole, yeah, let him step in the sunset. We're actually going to hop into one more news topic. Uh, we tried to keep the Oscars thing short so we can get to it. Noah is actually going to read this off to it, which is actually pretty interesting. All right. Thank you, Brandon. Yes, for our final news topic, we are talking a Netflix original series that I know some circles of my friends are all tuned into. Uh, it is the Umbrella Academy. So if you are watching Umbrella Academy, we are approaching season three. We're looking at a June 22nd release date and we are being introduced to a new character in this season of Umbrella Academy in Victor Hargreaves being portrayed by Elliot Page. Uh, previously in the first two seasons, the character of Vanya Hargreaves, this will actually be um, the character Vanya's coming out as trans in the Umbrella Academy series. And that is why we are approaching this new character in Victor Hargreaves. So this will be Elliot Page's first role since coming out as trans. So it's kind of interesting to see um, both the real life, the real life uh, transition of Paige, as well as this character uh, being translated into the series. So I'm very interested in that. Umbrella Academy has had some great uh, like queer representation over the past seasons. So just continuing to build upon that, I think that this is um, a series to look out for because they are pushing the pushing the bar and um, doing it all while juggling like wacky space time, superhero, like talking monkeys. <laughs> Umbrella Academy is definitely a funky series. Uh, it is based on the dark horse comics uh, graphic novel of the same name. So if you're interested in some of like the, uh, the original source material, uh, you can always go tune into those comics. Uh, Brandon uh, handling Tossing over to you, are you tuned into the Umbrella Academy series? Uh, if so, let me know what you think about it so far and what this news means to you. Uh, and if not, you know, is this turning you on to the series? And do you think that it's one to look out for? I don't think if I wasn't a fan, this would be the thing of like, oh, I need to watch it. But again, that's for you guys out there to decide. 
for me, I'm a huge fan of this. I read the first volume of the comic, which is written by Gerard Way, by the way, from My Chemical Romance, if that fascinates any of you, which he's actually a tremendous comic writer. Um, it's a weird book. It's even weirder than the series, uh, but I think it's really interesting with him and uh, Gabriel Ba's artwork. And the actual two seasons of the show, I think, are really good. I think you're right. It It is madness, but it's also this kind of weird 60s vaudeville-esque humor type thing mixed with a kind of like time travel aesthetic to it all that shouldn't work but weirdly does uh and vanya now victor i should say is one of the hearts of the show i think his arc has been so pivotal to the series has really brought a lot of essence to uh, has really brought a lot of complexity to characters that i don't think could have gone that far as a whole as far as elliot page's transition i was always really happy to see like i was so happy to see him at the oscars a couple weeks ago with uh, jk and uh, jennifer gardner just you know being himself and like being out and proud and like i think that's so great to see his transition and i'm excited to see what he can do as a performer to bring that character to more, to interesting lights i don't remember how season 2 ended so i have to go back and watch that but at, just as a whole like this is great news i'm glad they're including him in the show and uh, you're right between diego and klaus the show has had really great lgbtq representation we can turn over to our quick hit section uh brandon why don't you take it away uh, I've got my quick hit first. Let me just grab my timer in three, two, one. So uh, for those of you who may be in the know as far as, you know, niche comic movies, you might be familiar with a movie called The Crow. It was out in 1994, directed by Alex Poyas, starring the late Brandon Lee, rest in peace, who actually died on set. Uh, it's, in my mind, one of the most underappreciated comic movies of all time. I've never read the original material, but I think it's fascinating. Well, there has been a remake of this movie in development for years. And I mean, not just decade, like at least 20 years. It's, it's been a long time. Um, it, it, uh, there, we don't have time to go into the history. Needless to say, the remake seems to be properly happening now, and it's got a team behind it. Uh, it and Nine Days star Bill Skarsgård, of course, Pennywise himself, will lead as Eric Draven, a.k.a. The Crow. Uh, FKA Twigs, you might know from a lot of her music. She is making her acting debut alongside him. And Ghost in the Shell's Rupert Sanders will be directing the movie. King Richard Zach Balin will uh, write the script and will start production in Munich this June, supposedly. Uh, it'll be a different stake on the uh, story of Eric Draven, who in the comics is killed. He and his girlfriend are murdered. Sometimes she's raped. It, it depends on the iteration, but they are brought back by a mystical crow to take revenge on those who had wronged them. There's a lot to explain about this. I'm excited for it. I hope it happens and time. Woohoo! Good job, Brandon. Uh, uh, why do we limit <laughs> ourselves to a minute? Anyways, yours. Because we test ourselves, Brandon, and we push the limits. All right. So my minute will begin in three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Do you remember that Evil Dead remake? Well, it is coming from Fede Alvarez, it is celebrating nine years, having released in April in 2000. I don't know why I'm telling you the year. It's nine years old, okay? It has an alternate ending that the director recently shared over social media. Uh, if you are a fan of the movie, I think you definitely want to see how uh, Alvarez intended to pay homage to uh, Sam Raimi's original Evil Dead in displaying a alternate ending that features Mia, the main character, being taken over by the evil in the story. Um, of course, the ending that we did get involved Mia you know, entering like this 10 minute battle with some kind of hell spawn that I think actually makes this movie one of my favorite horrors. Um, so I'm so happy that he kept that original ending in because it's epic. Uh, Sam Raimi, of course, uh, directed the original Evil Dead as well as wrote it. And we will be seeing his name pop up very soon in Doctor Strange as he directs the multiverse of madness. Um, but check out that alternate ending if you're a horror fan and time. Bravo. I, I heard a lot of buzz around this ending and I have no context for it. <laughs> I'm definitely happy that they kept the one that we got in theaters because, like I said, it 
really was the showdown of the film. But the alternate ending, I think you take it in and you're like, oh, cool. Parallel universe. Um, we'll be getting into universes <laughs> very soon. Brandon. Well, Deadiverse. Deadites. Deadite is Hellraiser, isn't it? Yes. Let's Move talk on. movies. Let's talk movies. We are reviewing four on our list today. I know that's heavy, but hey, we're big boys here. We pick up the big assignments. Um, we are talking Ambulance today. We are talking Sonic the Hedgehog 2, all the old knives, and everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, I cannot wait to talk about each and every one of these. Brandon, introduce us to our first movie. All the Old Knives. This is directed by Yenes Metz, who is a director that I'm really not familiar with. He did a uh, Borg versus McEnroe, which is that tennis movie with Shia LaBeouf a couple of years ago, if you saw that. It stars uh, Chris Pine, Tendiway Newton. Uh, Chris Pine is Henry. Tendiway is Celia. She has retired from the spy game. They used to work at a station in Vienna in 2012. Needless to say, there was a hijacking of an airplane by Muslim extremists. They killed everyone on board. Celia left soon afterwards. Now it is, I believe, eight years later. Uh, where Chris Pine's character now goes to visit her in California with her new family. They were lovers at a the time. There's still this kind of palpable spark that they don't really want to acknowledge. But needless to say, he is there on business because apparently there is a mole within their, uh, within their CIA agency in Vienna. He needs to find out why, if they had anything to do with the hijacking, whether she had anything to do with the hijacking, whether or not their boss, played by um, Lawrence Fishburne, or their second-in-command, played by Jonathan Price, had anything to do with it. And the whole movie is basically an elongated dinner conversation told through flashbacks, but also is kind of this old-school spy thriller kind of feel, just matched between these two really powerhouse performances in Pine and Newton that we'll get to in a moment. Noah, over to you first. I didn't watch the trailer for this, so I was coming into this mostly blind. For you, did you have any expectations going into it, and what did you think of this? I think I was the one who, when we were considering this movie for coverage, I went, uh, oh, yeah, if I don't make it or if we're not able to cover it on the pod, I'm just still going to tune into this because it was I feel like this is a like retired genre. Like I don't we don't see a lot of them nowadays um, where we have the the ex lovers, but who are both involved in espionage work. It's reminding me of like uh allies or allied i think it's called as well as like oh, the tour with um with brad pitt and marion cotillard right yes oh my god i forgot about that movie it, it has this like unique feel of a like a, a dark romance because um whether you're dealing with past lovers or even a married couple um who have to deal with their commitments to their country and their espionage work then it, it immediately draws the lines of trust and then how that <laughs> being a spy interweaves in a relationship that is no longer professional. Like, so Tandy Wayne Newton and uh, Chris Pine are, um, you know, previous lovers here. And yeah, the bulk of the movie takes place over a dinner conversation where we expect, you know, one side of truths to be revealed. And then the movie like spins on itself. And there's, there's um, reveals of information throughout that entire conversation. Um, and then with the flashbacks, this movie is telling kind of two stories at once. One is bits and pieces about a plane hijack that happened years prior. And the second is um, how the night progresses. I know that this movie will appeal to, I think, a few off the bat. I think that going into this movie, you need to be prepared for an espionage flick. You know, it's not noir, but it definitely is like a quiet, like it, it's not hollow, but it almost, it, it gives that impression because the, the detail here is in the script. It's in these weighted conversations that, um, 
do take time to shuffle through throughout the movie. This movie, um, surprisingly is under the two hour mark, but yeah, the bulk, the bulk of this movie's drama stems from their conversations and those reveals of plot, not in, you know, silence pistol bond action sequences. This is a different kind of spy thriller. Um, definitely a genre that I'm happy to explore. Uh, but regarding a general audience, I think this one may be a little bit tougher to just jump right into. Uh, would you agree, Brandon? How were those first impressions for you watching the movie? I'd agree. Like, this is a movie that your 60-year-old, 70-year-old grandparents are going to turn on and love because it, no, because it it feels like one of those, like, made-for-TV, you know, all-in-one location, going back and seeing what went wrong, you know, CIA-glorifying movies. And I say that in a good way. I don't mean that in, like, a kind of bad way. That being said, I don't think I like the movie very much. Uh, it's easily the weakest of the four we're going to be discussing today. <laughs> Uh, it's not that Janice Metz is a bad director. I actually think he's pretty solid when it comes to building up that general premise. Both Chris Pine and Tendi Newton, I think, are pretty good in this. Um, I think they have really good chemistry, specifically Pine, who I will send you this article, and I might put it in the description as well. Uh, there's a Slate article that described Chris Pine as the modern-day Robert Redford. And the more that you know about Redford's career and kind of that style that he came up in, and even Paul Newman as well, but specifically like Redford's work, it makes all the more sense because Pine is very much playing, you know, as he is, like, you know, the insanely gorgeous, you know, handsome, all-in-one leading man, but there's a darkness to him. There's a very vague sense of vaudevillian style to him that I always think it's underplayed, and I think in here he's starting to recognize roles like that that he can actually cut it a little more loose with. Uh, And Newton as well gets a couple of really great moments, especially in the third act where... There are a lot of twists in this, but the main twist, I think she handles really well as a performer and is able to handle the weight of it all and the sort of semblance of pacing of it. That being said, the movie just kind of does what it does. I don't think the flashbacks are that well-structured. Uh, the whole, All the stuff within, like the whole Vienna Bureau is fine, but it feels like the movie really expects us to get a vibe of everything going on and get it all. And by the time it ends, I was like, that makes sense. But you didn't give me all the pieces for this, or at the very least, you didn't give me all the pieces in an order that fits. Uh, and just as a, it kind of felt like to me, if you saw Atomic Blonde, it felt kind of like how I vibe with that movie, where as an action movie, I think it works great. As a narrative spy thriller, it kind of gets too much in its own head and gets one too many twists by the end where I felt this works, but it should be better. And regarding how to approach this movie's like the the details of it all, you know, the, all those twists and turns on my first watch. I had so many questions I had, maybe I got up and grabbed myself a drink of water or something. And I missed, a, I missed a sentence or two. And this movie is like, you have to sit and watch and listen and probably read every subtitle for every text because there isn't a big flashy fight or explosion to make you to involve you as quickly or as readily. And I think that this movie's opening is very strong, um, introducing us to the characters and the, the burden of having to, you know, search for a mole within your own agency is pines to take on. And he, and he wears that well in the beginning, but I just felt like the, the end of the movie, this movie had like an exponential decline for how, how thrilling I was involved in the story in the beginning. It definitely felt like the pieces were moving fast. And I had big question marks around who is the mole? um, What series of events led to this thing happening? 
But by the end of it, I had more smaller question marks because I just, I wasn't connecting threads. And I think that's unfortunate, but for the right audience, this is exactly what you want out of your spy thriller. Um, It's a little out of time, but Hey, this is a streaming option. It came out on Amazon prime video. Uh, I did see remarks saying (laughs) the marketing team behind this film just did not know when to share messages about it. And that's true. Like, I think I watched one trailer on this because maybe I was watching another prime video um, series, but other than that, yeah, I didn't see any major trailer for this or any real like marketing behind how this movie could work for a general audience. So it, it does. And it feels just like another Amazon crime government thriller. And it feels like Amazon is doing a lot of those nowadays, whether it's series or whether it's movies um, for me, again, I think it just doesn't quite, it doesn't nail the suspense of it all. It, it has suspense, and it really does tie into the idea of this hijacking, which the more you actually hear about it, as little as the Vienna Bureau is able to do, like the more suspenseful you're of. Like, can they actually save them? Is there anything they can actually do? But by the time that the movie ends, that's not really the focus anymore. And by the time we get to that point, it just doesn't really have that same heft of weight that it should, even though, again, Pine and Newton are doing whatever they can to carry it. I should also mention... Fishburne and Price are wasted in this. They both have maybe one scene that really shows them as performers and the rest of them are just grunt boss in the Vienna Bureau, I should say. And I was kind of disappointed in that. It's entirely too gray. I think that regarding visual, regarding visuals and regarding locations, like I I thought the restaurant where we have Celia and Henry uh, meeting to, to like kind of rekindle themselves, not in the romantic sense, but at least their, their professional relationship to reflect on this past event. Um, I think that that's a good setting just to get us started. I wasn't prepared to be there the entire movie. And then all the flashbacks are entirely moody, like gloomy cityscapes. If it, ha- if it had something else going for it, <laughs> the visuals were not there. So let's hop over to ratings. Uh, for me personally, this is a pretty solid six out of 10. Uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. I enjoyed it for going along for what it was but it is very much of its own place and of its own time. Again, even visually, you're right. It, it harkens back to, you know, moodier, monotone, maybe not black and white, but again, like spy thrillers that knew where they were and kind of didn't have a sense of character and awe to them. Again, I think Pine and Newton should be applauded for this. They are both doing great work, and I want to see them do more like this with maybe a tighter script or more expansion on that kind of mythology to it. I like the stakes that are initially involved, but as the movie goes on, it becomes more reluctant to follow if you're interested in like your spy thrillers, I don't think it earns that sense of welcoming, you know, reputation that it so wants, but I, you know, understand the appeal for it. And if you're an older audience, I can totally see this really appealing to you, but otherwise not so much. I might've liked it more if it was in black and white, because then at least I know the foundation is in what these characters are saying and what's being spoken. Um, I'm right there with you. Six out of 10. I think this works for the right audience who is willing to approach this um, with high hopes of it delivering on in the sense of drama and in the, in the sense of reapproaching a genre that is for lack of a better word, kind of like shelved in, in the recent years. Um, six out of 10 here. I'm happy to see Tandy way lead another picture after having her just for a short time in reminiscence, but uh, definitely love seeing her take on leading, leading roles. When Westworld returns, we will be tuning into that. Um, and Chris Pine, he's not at a point in his career where I see him slowing down, but it looks like he's not the big action hero anymore. So let's see wherever he goes next. And if he's, if it's in this slower drama space, um, I wonder how that would work for his career lead, moving forward. Well, he's also the only Chris who right now doesn't have a superhero franchise, which I think is an interesting take for him. And I want to see him explore more of those like weird oddball things, because I think as a performer, he might be the most diverse of all the Chris's. 
hey, this is uh this is Star this is Star Trek. Uh this is Star Trek, Chris. Which we still might be getting, who knows? The next film we will be talking today is Michael Bay's Ambulance. This movie covers uh the hijacking of uh of course an ambulance um in LA and what what proceeds is like a two hour mayhem that you can expect from a director like Bay who has uh, previously been in charge of the Transformers series, as we all are well aware. Um, this movie features two leading actors in Yaya Abdul-Mateen II and Jake Gyllenhaal, Isa Gonzalez, uh, playing the paramedic on board the ambulance. Uh, Brandon and I got around to this. Brandon, remind me, did you make the early screening of this film? I did. I've actually reviewed up for Odyssey by the time you're listening to this. Why don't we first hop over to your to your early reaction? Did you feel that this movie was the type of movie that you that has a solid reaction to it, like across audiences, or do you think this movie is like a fifty fifty? Like it will be divisive for some. I want to do quickly mention uh, this is based on a two thousand five Danish film, uh, Ambulance, and of the same name. Uh, which I think is interesting. I couldn't tell if this was a remake at all. Like it felt just like Bay had an idea and executed it. Directed by Bay, written by Chris Fadok. Uh, for me, as far as my reaction coming out of the theater goes, I initially felt it was pretty positive overall. Like I was coming into it with a, it was a press screening, but it was a also a public screening. Uh, it was a mix of the two. Uh, and a lot of the reactions I heard were really great. There were at least two kind of, ah, oh, yeah, reactions that I heard in the theater, which I thought was kind of fun. And even hearing a lot of critics eavesdropping, as I shouldn't do, but eavesdropping a lot of critical uh, perspective afterwards, I heard a lot of like really good thoughts. Like a lot of people thought it was really fast paced and really well done and maybe Bay's best thing in years. And I agree with all of that, actually. Um, that's not necessarily to say that I loved the movie. Uh, it is still a Bay movie, and I have my problems with his sense of style and his sense of pacing and, you know, everything around it. But is it good? Yeah, I actually think this is pretty good. Uh, if for no other reason, then it knows what it is. It knows how to pace it out. And the, it's funny. I told the press people right afterwards, I can sum this up in three words. It doesn't stop. Because after about a 15-minute prologue to establish, uh, we should mention Jake Gyllenhaal, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II are adopted brothers in this. They are essentially our protagonists throughout all of this. Once we get them established and Aza Gonzalez's paramedic character established, once we get into the ambulance, it is go, go, go for about two hours long. And it barely stops aside from like two moments towards the third act. But really, it is just guys in ambulance getting chased by police all over L.A. and hoping they don't kill people along the way. And the actual stakes involved, I was impressed just how much it was able to do with so little. Like, you don't, ex- the, the whole stakes of it all is like, they're going to get caught in the ambulance. It's going to it's going to run out of gas eventually. It is essentially speed for 2022. And yet, Bay and Fedox seemingly find new ways to twist things, either with, you know, something about a police sergeant or something about, like, the cop that they're helping in the police or, you know, the gangs that Jake Gyllenhaal's character might be backed up with. Like, there's always something else going on. And I was shocked at how many times I was sucking into my seat going, okay, this is too much. Please get me out of here. And then something else happens. And I go, okay, tell me more. Thank you for your positive response to this movie because it's going to have to be well balanced with my sprinkle of saltiness that I'm feeling with this movie. Here we go. Michael Bay, man. Let me just give you one clap because I don't think that I um, particularly enjoyed this movie. So I checked out Ambulance um, on a late night showing and um, was ready for that two hour, you know, pack thriller you're watching this movie and as soon as they get going they there's no brakes on this truck 
I think the better parts of this movie happen outside of the focus of the vehicle. Um, We are in an ambulance. It is going. Cops are chasing. Sometimes there's choppers. Sometimes there's blockades. Sometimes there's alternate routes. You name it. But we're in an ambulance and we're not stopping. How long can that last? Because I think I was prepared for a short sequence that defined why this movie was called Ambulance. But instead, it felt like I got a prolonged version of like what would have been a a basic story with like with intensity behind it. Um, And it just for me, it just felt like a prolonged period of time where we spent in a vehicle where for lack of any action going on inside, there was constant cutbacks to the cars, the police chase scenes that were happening. I was waiting for one of them to turn into a transformer because I thought this movie needs to do something. Um, <laughs> it didn't leave much for Isa Gonzalez's character to do as the paramedic on board, trying to um, keep a, keep a wounded cop in the back uh, alive pretty much for the bulk of the movie and doing what she can to communicate with her uh they're not kidnappers, but communicate with the people uh, who have hijacked now her ambulance and conversations between brothers. They grapple with the the struggle in a lot of these crime thrillers where when their siblings attached, it's like one of them is really in on the plan and understands the state. And then there's the other end of things where uh, Yaya Abdul, Mateen II's character is centered around, I want to protect my family. I have this security that I need to uh, maintain in my health and for my family's sake. Um, you know, is this, are we going too far? Are we going too far? And it's, and it, it rounds those, um, it, that happens around, uh, most of the corners in this story. I felt like this movie, because there was not a lot of action to capture within the ambulance, it goes for these jagged cuts here and there, leaving a viewer like me who was waiting to like sit with these characters. Well, I can't see them for very long b- before another cut is made and it's like I spend maybe half a second with that scene before it's gone already. Um It's unfortunate because I think that's very, that's something that I am watching out for and I can be distracted by. So if you find yourself experiencing that when you go to the theaters or maybe catching on to those elements, um, I think that this will be a harder, a harder time for you to uh, sit down and just enjoy uh, the action. You know, Michael Bay sets up some pretty, pretty great, um, uh, like set pieces here. One in particular that I think really, really defines like some of the greater shots in this movie is they're driving the ambulance through like these canals in the, in the LA, um, the LA river sequence. Yeah. The LA river sequence. And there are two choppers that are pretty much (laughs) on ground level pursuing them and they're, they're driving through water and it, 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 causes this like these these wakes of water to be um pushed out from behind them and it's just a cool shot like it looks so so great um and i was like whoa like this okay this is the action that i knew we would be getting from michael bay um but that last that lasted for as long as it did and then the 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 story pushed and pushed and pushed and um i know i'm kind of like going long wind here brandon but i'm going to talk a little bit about the ending as well and that is um, this movie does feel like we're returning to transformer style of they going, you know, it's the end of the movie. It's time for the wrap up. Maybe, maybe slow sequences of families hugging and of, you know, us talking about hope for the future. Maybe that'll define the ending of our story. And I'm like, dude, 
what? Like that, <laughs> this trick won't work on us again. But America. Um, but America. And that's my brother. Um, talk to me, Brandon. After hearing that, you know, what, what kind of notes do you got? Yeah, I definitely don't want to be the producers and their accountants trying to figure out how to get tax breaks in L.A. during traffic. I don't want to figure that out. Um, if we're talking about negatives, I will gladly join you on the editing. I'll go one step further. It sucks. Uh, I think Pietro Scalia, like credit to the guy. I know he's worked with Michael Bay before. And I think 13 hours, uh, he might've worked with him on Transformers movies as well. It's terrible. It's not good. It It is easily the part of the movie that if you didn't like the movie and you said, this was why I would go, yep, I completely agree with you. The drone shots are overdone. And I know they've got a lot of praise online. I, for the life of me, don't get it. It feels like, did you ever see Black Hat with Chris Hemsworth? Nope. There's a sequence in that movie where it's based in hackers. And there's a moment where they take the camera and kind of like insert it into the computer wires and like shift around. And it feels so like dated 90s. This reminded me of that. Like this is going to look back in like so dated 2020s. It just does not work. Um, It it is easily the the worst element of the movie. That being said, I would like to conversation on the brothers real quick. Uh, Yaya to me never phones it in. Uh, he's not given a lot to do. He's very much, you know, regal, noble soldier who just wants to do right by his family. And like, you can easily root behind him. Jake Gyllenhaal. Here's the thing. I know there's a couple people listening around. I know there are who don't like Jake Gyllenhaal. I love him in this movie. He's so good. And I don't care if it's a thing of just like, he came to every take like snorting cocaine or whatever. I don't care. He's so much fun to watch. Every line, you have no idea what will come out of his mouth. He's maybe one of Bay's most entertaining characters. And if Joan Hall said, I'm going to do three more movies with this guy, I'd go, fine, do it. Because you're easily the most entertaining part of it. Uh, and Asa Gonzalez is fine too. But like, Joan Hall, I'm sorry. He's really good. He's the one on screen that you know is going to push action when he's there. Hell, the other two main characters, they have regards. They have reservations. His character is off the wall. That makes him the perfect primary suspect to follow on this story. It just breathes through the screen. I even send that initial reaction like, look, do you, are you interested in like a two-hour go, go, go police heist movie? Then you're going to love this. And a lot of people have, and I respect all of that. And I'm mostly on that. I think I finally come around to being like, yes, I like this movie. But at the same time, it's Michael Bay, and he has not lost one ounce of his Bayisms. Is it better than, you know, Transformers 5 and 6 Underground? Yeah, sure. I think the structure is better, but, like, you're, you're right. Like, the Dutch angles are way too plentiful. The Even even though Aza Gonzalez is probably one of his more subtle female characters, they give her a lot of ass shots, a lot of, you know, over-the-shoulder glam shots, which, again, for a police change that runs, I think, the entire day, all of her makeup is fine. Like, there's not a second of grittiness behind this movie, which, again, takes you out of it. I was going to comment on the fact that, like, in, the th- in, <laughs> in, like, the last act of the movie, there's so many, there's some close shots of her face, and she's got, like, this pristine lip gloss on. And I, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I think, are you sure you're not shot? Like, how, how, how do we have time? What is going on here? Um we all know in real life situations, I think, I think the paramedic and the person she's helping would have been booted off of that truck immediately. Um, or how people will just survive gunshots miraculously. Like, I get it. They're wearing bulletproof vests. They have medical supplies. But, like, that's not how that works. Yes. And um, did you feel at all that the final, like, I guess the climax of it all, you know, all all eyes on this scene in the very end – Were you satisfied with how they executed that? The climax, yes. The ending, not so much. I think, like, between the actual thing that happens and the last shot of the movie, 
I would have taken most of that out, maybe gotten one scene at the hospital and that would have been it. It's about three minutes too long, but I do like the actual last image. I won't say what it is, but like, I like what that represents for that specific character and like tying it back to their arc. Um, but again, like the actual climax of what happens between the brothers and the paramedic, I think the tension in that is actually really palpable. All right. <laughs> I wanted I to hear it. your take. I get it. Moving on to ratings. Yeah, again, for me, I, I don't want to go too high or too low with it. I've been debating the ratings since I saw it, frankly. Um, go low. You know, I'm I, the devil on your shoulder. Ah, you hate Michael Bay. Yes, I do hate Michael Bay. Um, but I like this, and I'm giving it a seven and a half. I think for, again, I will acknowledge it's poorly edited. The set, the actual story that goes through it is pretty simple. The stuff with the police with uh, Garrett Dillahunt and Kiro Donald as the cops who are going after them is kind of pointless and basically just boils down to you're young and you're old and we hate each other. Um, it's a lot of, and the Bayisms are all there. And if you have hated him for his entire career, this will not turn you around. That being said, it's fun. It knows what it is. It has at least one, if not three, really solid performances in its center. I like the setup of it. I like how it just goes and doesn't stop. I wish more action movies were this balls to the wall with what they were trying to do. It Not all of it works. But you know what? I'm just going to act like I had fun with it. We all just want to have fun with these movies. And have Noah, those, meanwhile. <laughs> have those speakers ablazing in the theaters. Um, yeah, this is probably like a five for me. I'm going to yeah. give this a five out of ten. Uh, I got to draw it in the middle mark because I'm like, there are some <laughs> pretty great, um, like you say, Michael Bay-isms of this. Like when you're watching this, you definitely go like, oh, hey, is this the guy? Yeah, yeah Transform? Yeah, okay, that's him. Awesome. Um, in the first 30 seconds... I will mention that if they had explored this character a bit more, um, their name was Lieutenant Zag, Zagig, Zagig. The, the I, woman in the helicopter. Yes. I can't be too for, I can't be too for sure. Uh, the act, actor's name is Olivia Stambulia. Um, had they, had they focused on her character a bit more? I found that she provided like some, some pretty cool, um, I, I don't know, just her conversations with the other cops involved. They just seemed to have, they just seemed to exhibit like, like, this authority um, regard, regarding the scene. And as soon as she comes in, she kind of challenges that. And I, and I like that. I like seeing that from her. We are leaning into the second half of our movie segment and talking Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Uh, this is the only sequel that we're covering here, um, but another theatrical release uh, releasing on April 8th. Um, I know that you were, and Sam were both major, um, you know, uh, thumbs up that I heard from the Sonic space. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, this is the movie that no one thought would happen, uh, let alone be good. I enjoyed the first one thoroughly, and a lot of people other did. It made money, and now we're getting the sequel from Paramount, and a third film's already in development, so you know this isn't the end. Uh, Sonic 2, this is once again directed by Jeff Fowler. Uh, Pat Casey and Josh Miller come back to write it, as does a majority of the original cast. We basically follow up uh, several months after the events of the first movie. We have Sonic, voiced once again by Ben Schwartz. He's, you know... The rabble-rousing, you know, super-fast, chili-dog-loving hedgehog who is now developing his superhero identity as Blue Justice, uh, although everyone else would prefer he just stayed Sonic. Um, he is somewhat his guardian, I should say. Uh, James Mars and Tika Sumter are once again back as the Wachowskis, uh, Tom and Maddie. As his surrogate parents, he doesn't like calling them that, but, you know, there's trauma there. We'll explore that later. Uh, needless to say, they are going to Hawaii to go celebrate uh, Tika Sumter's character's sister, who is once again Natasha Rothwell coming back from the last movie. She was great in that. Uh, she's getting married to Shamar's Moore's character, who is a policeman. We'll leave it at that. Um, they're going to Hawaii to go to his wedding, and Sonic is left alone. 
Needless to say, everything goes fine until, oh God, Dr. Robotnik is back once again, played by Jim Carrey, and he has help. Uh, now with uh, Knuckles, who is an echidna warrior, uh, red, big buff guy, played, uh, voiced, I should say, by Idris Elba, who believes Sonic is the key to unlocking the Master Emerald, which is this master power source that is seemingly left on Earth that Sonic might know the path to. Also, there is Miles Tails Prower, voiced once again by Kalina Shaughnessy from the video games. A uh, sort of Sonic super fan who just kind of wants a friend in the universe, uh, who was worried about Sonic uh, getting basically killed by Knuckles. So now it's Sonic and Tails versus uh, Robotnik and Knuckles to find the Master Emerald, all in hopes of not destroying this Hawaiian wedding. It's a weird movie once again, but maybe it works better than it should. I think so. Noah, over to you. We've talked about this movie for a long time. Uh, I Every time we have, you have not seen the original. Have you rectified that? And even if you have not, Sonic 2. What'd you think? Sonic 2. Um, That's the theme song. Sonic 2. Um, um, Brandon and audience, uh, colonels in the back, uh, go ahead and throw the tomatoes at me right now. Because no, I have not seen Sonic Part 1. But guess what? I returned to theaters for the third time this week to watch Sonic Part 2. Uh, I, I definitely um, am a Sonic fan. I did play the video games, and that's where uh, I think I appreciated the character growing up. And understanding who Tails is, uh, Robotnik and, and Knuckles. Like there, there's so many, I think, fun characters here to explore. And the fact that we got a sequel that introduces several others, um, is amazing. And so going into this, I was like, Hey, let me just be prepared to see a Sonic movie that might have some threads from the original that I might not understand. But hey, I know that he's a blue guy. He's a blue hedgehog. He moves, he moves and runs pretty damn fast. And James Marsden is his, um, sort of like would be father figure mentor guidance throughout the story. And that's, that was pretty easy to sign up for. As soon as I sat down and the movie started, it doesn't introduce itself in some kind of, you know, connected thread from the original movie. It actually kind of picks up as if it was its own thing, just taking in the new relationship of now living with uh, Tom Wachowski, which is James Marsden character. And, uh, going on this new <laughs> yeah, uh, adventure of blue being blue justice at night where he thinks he's saving the city only to cause like mayhem and like cause destruction, leave destruction in his wake. So he's learning from Tom what it means to be a responsible hero. So that's kind of Sonic's journey throughout this film. Um, all the while being inter- interrupted, intercepted by Dr. Robotnik, uh, played by Jim Carrey. And after reading all the reactions from people talking about Jim Carrey's just character choices in this role. He is just perfection as Dr. Robotnik. Like the fact that they made the mustache, cause I did go back and look at pictures of the original. The fact that they made that mustache even more mustachey and wild and super villainy. I love when it comes to the human performances here or the live action performances here on screen. He's the one I was watching uh, Jim Carrey eyes glued to him. Um, the animation here is really really something i think i became amazed once i was watching uh sonic's gloves and i was like oh my gosh you can even see like the little textures on him and that i think is so so lovely um the animation here definitely belongs to its world we're introduced to a scene in the beginning that has Dr. Robotnik on this planet that's filled with nothing but mushrooms. And there's this whole (laughs) elaborate setup he has to make himself some, some kind of mushroom juice or tea, whatever you name it. And the animation just feels 
fun and super approachable. I was in an audience filled with children and families and I was laughing just as much as them because this movie really is sweet and uh, it was a fun ride throughout. So uh, those, those are my top notes. Uh, the introdu- introduction of Knuckles, Brandon, what did you think? How did he fit well with the blue friend? Really good. And I do want to quickly comment on the Jim Carrey thing. One, I think he is just as good, if not better than the last movie. He is hamming it up. If he was 100% in the first movie, he's 200% in this movie. Like, every line is just, oh, my God, what is happening? Like, that kind of thing. And you know what? It totally works for what this movie needs to do, and no other movie should it. And it is the one reason why I would say, Jim Carrey, please don't retire just yet. Just do one more of these, please. Just just for me. Slow me. Um, But, yeah, as far as the human performances go, he is easily the standout. Along with uh, Lee Majdub, who plays uh, Stone, the coffee-loving henchman of Dr. Eggman, who is also back from the first movie. He's great. He's wonderful. And there's a Stone version of him as well. And that's a great inside joke. Um, as far as Knuckles go, yeah. Knuckles, interestingly, you know, we made the joke of just like, oh, Idris Elba's going to be sexy Knuckles. And while I won't argue against that, I think he actually has the most emotional through line of the entire movie. I think if if the first movie was Sonic's movie to grow and develop, and he does in this as well to an extent, this is really Knuckles' movie to, yes, establish himself, but also really gain a grasp on what his purpose is, what he's been brought up to believe, like where he wants to go with his own life. And by the end of the movie, you're right. It's sweet and interesting, but still like really powerful and aggressive for what that character should be. Um, and again, once again, both Ben Schwartz and Andrew Selva do great work with the voice. Like, even if they weren't in the same room, you can tell that there's like really great back and forth chemistry. And to your Colleen O'Shaughnessy as Tails again, she gets a lot of like really fun, sweet. She gets maybe the like most awe moments of the movie, which is great. And I like the, I like the dynamic that the three of them and Eggman have together. We'll get to the rest of it. I love this character of Knuckles being, uh, you know, the strongest warrior in all the galaxy. And believing he has to solve everything with a punch and with a fight and not understanding how to slow things down or not, not grasping that reality can be more like it could be less painful. And I love that. I love that Sonic is included in, in that teaching or like instruction to Knuckles. He is an independent. And that's why I think I like him a lot is because he kind of is, he's an agent of his own and he's not acting on anyone else's behalf. He's kind of acting with them. Uh, and that's why we see the initial pairing between him and Robotnik. Um, but I'll let you explore how that relationship evolves. Getting to the mythology in the Sonic world. Like I'm, although I did play the video games, there's a, there's like a central plot device here in this movie called the Emerald, I forgot what it's called. What was it called? Master Emerald. The Master Emerald, which allows one to wield the power to create and bring to life anything that they think of or like any of their thoughts, um, they can turn into reality. And so I was like, Ooh, this is, this is a pretty interesting, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it's a, it's a, it's a relic. It's like, it's something that they want to, it's um, totally not the infinity gauntlet. It's totally not the infinity gauntlet, which is what I'm not trying to compare it to. Um, but essentially, yeah, like you have this, um, universally respected and also feared kind of gem that Robotnik is after. And I liked, um, watching the world open up to that kind of story. Um, and then we do have kind of like a fun, side plot of the wedding in in the Hawaii um, of the marriage in Hawaii, where we're getting funny sequences of James Marsden character, just trying to get along with Shamar Moore, as well as his wife, Natasha Rothwell's character, Rachel, who I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brandon, is this 
this is a continued relationship from the first movie. So you understand why there's like bitter, like bitterness and bickering between them, but still like there's love. I just watching the sequel and just kind of taking in their relationship for the first time. I was just trying to think for myself, like, I wonder what happened in the first movie. Like why she treats him as kind of like, Hey, you kind of like nearly ruined my life, but I'm still your friend. Like, let's, let's just get behind this. What can you share? And they kind of tease it a little bit of just like, Oh yeah. Remember when you like broke down my house and stuff like that? And he's like, yeah, that sucks. And so that's what it is for those of you who want to go just check out this movie in theaters and don't want to burden yourself with watching the first one. Um, that's all you need to know. Like this movie, uh, is ready to just be picked up and ran with. And if you're a fan of those, uh, Sega characters, then I think that you'll appreciate their iterations here. Idris Elba, his voice does work excellently. And then Tails being like a tinkerer of sorts. I was just waiting for every gadget that Tails pulled out because, um, I love that. I, I loved all of the, all of the quirkiness of like, Hey, catch this. <laughs> don't, I don't know why I just did that voice. No, that was good. That was good. <laughs> but there are some, there are some standout scenes here where you have like chaos and calamity from Robotnik and Sonic is just, he's so quick with his remarks and he's the type of fighter who in the arena, he's going to be throwing verbal jabs at you as often as he is going to try and swing at you. And that's what I love about the character is he's so fun and he doesn't lose himself in the intensity of the battle at someone like maybe knuckles would. Um, he definitely has those heroism traits that come out when they need to, but otherwise he's just so fun to watch. Like, and Ben Schwartz, um, as the voice actor behind him is, uh, he really illuminates the character <laughs> and makes me wish that I had, you know, a Sonic of my own to just always have something to say. Yeah. And, and as the movie goes into like, Sonic is still a kid and the idea of him learning is still very much present in this. The most it really goes to is that idea of, you know, there's always a point to the universe. You will get your point someday. And when you do, you'll have, you know, you'll hopefully have the resources and family around you to help. It's not the greatest thing, but like it ties into Tails and Knuckles' story as well. Maybe a little bit into Robotnik's as well. Maybe mostly the main three. Like that's the most deep it gets into, but I think it works for something like this. Uh, I will say the human story is not nearly as interesting. I like more the idea of, you know, again, Sonic and Tails versus Robotic and Knuckles and who's going to find the Emerald first and like seeing what's been buried on Earth. That's a bigger question. There's a lot of mythology you've explored with this. It doesn't make immediate sense, but I'm sure that will make sense in the upcoming third movie. Um, and you know what? It does what it needs to do in bringing like fun excitement. There's like a whole like there's a dance battle sequence in a Siberian uh, in the Siberian cabin, I should say, that's really, really fun. There's a sequence in like an ice cave near the mountain that's really great. And then there's, you know, more and more things that pop up and you're just like, oh, this is fun and exciting and with characters who I like and a villain who is just, again, handing it all up. So you kind of don't worry about all the rest of it, but it is still a criticism I have. For being as, like, hard-edged as he is and sharp, those gloves look so soft. Like, I'm just like, look at your, yeah. look at your soft little fuzzy gloves. Look at that. And I love, I love there's a moment where someone's carrying knuckles and they're just like, God, you're heavy. He's like, I'm a million percent muscle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a million percent muscle because I'm tough. And Tails like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we get it. Um, Sonic definitely acts with, with, he acts first, thinks later. So his, his method of planning, it's in the trailer. He's like, step one. Do this thing. Step two, haven't gotten Figure that far. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I found myself having a lot of fun this this movie. And I think that it's it's original enough for me to want to pursue its sequels and um, other takes on the character. There was some notable teases by the end of this movie that I am really excited about and tuned into. Um, we will simply course. say as we will simply say as fans of the game, there is stuff in the movie that is really cool, and there's stuff towards the end of the movie that you're like, okay. 
I think this is going to get high marks from me just, just for capturing the character in a way that made me still feel like I was, that this is rooted in the video game. Like whenever I saw him turn into the ball and however they play with light or like, you know, however they animate light that trails these characters when Knuckles becomes just the little like following of light of red and tails is yellow and Sonic is blue. Um, it, it just, it's such a visual cue that you are watching a Sonic movie. And, and I like those feelings. Um, Brandon, any final remarks come into this? No, I kind of, we kind of need ratings anyways. Uh, for me, this is again, very solid seven and a half out of 10. Uh, it's what I gave the initial movie, but I think the one thing this loses is that whereas the first was my biggest pleasant surprise of 2020, this, I had a feeling it was going to be fun going into it. And you know what? I think it's just as much fun maybe slightly more, but I think just around the same level of enjoyment as I got. I still love the main cast of characters, human or otherwise. The tone that they're striking with Sonic and his assorted characters in this, I think, really works. It respects the video games. It realizes how those characters would function in a quote-unquote realistic world and how you can make that pertain to a non-video game audience while still having some really great source material in there. It looks cheap, minus the characters, but I think that helps the overall feel of the world. It feels like this whole kind of, you know, vibey video game-esque aesthetic to it um the story is interesting it has things going for it the the comedy is great again uh so yeah it's a really fun time with the movies i saw it in a pretty packed theater with a lot of families they were all the kids were all loving it and like dancing to the kid cuddy song at the end so like i think a lot of people are going to really enjoy this and i hope it's successful i thought that was kid cuddy that's good to know Heck yeah it was yeah of course how, how could you not right with his with his identifiable voice um for me I would like to give this an uh, 8 out of 10. I think that just approaching this film, I wasn't prepared to like it as much as I did or not be like as entertained as... Because of, I think, of course, it is a video game movie, but having a character like Sonic and having him be a kid, I was just like, oh, this is going to incline more to like kids. And because Robotnik is just going to be like this r- ridiculous carry figure. No, like this, this feels like a lot more than that. I think even approaching it with all right expectations... I was, um, I ended up walking away with something that's memorable, something that made me laugh, something that I know once it's streamable, if it, if it will be, um, I'll be putting it on when I just want something lighthearted and fun. Um, it doesn't have any, I think like low emotional beats. And, uh, I think that plays in its favor because it, it should just, these are all ups. Like these are all great, um, moments for the characters. I'm happy we didn't have to have a pretend scene of like, oh my God, is Sonic going to die? Because like, why would, like, who's going to kill Sonic? Who's going to kill Sonic? Um, and then regarding any time, like there's human performances, Carrie carries, Carrie carries it. And so, um, he is, he's the Santa performance as Brandon says. So, uh, watching this movie, Hey, if he does retire soon, I think you'll regret not having seen this in theaters and, and witnessing all of his wacky, all of his wackiness just on full display in this character that he has full range to be, um, you know, as, as slated as he needs to be, but then as like explosive as he can in other moments. So bring him back as more super villain, uh, I eight need, out of 10 for me. I need Carrie carries on the Blu-ray. Carry carries hyphen plot devices pod. I plot devices pod. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to our final wide release. The one that I'm sure that some of you are dying to hear us talk about. And I cannot wait to talk about it. it is everything everywhere all at once. Yes. That's the name of the movie uh, directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Schneider, AKA Daniels. So you might know from their last movie, Swiss army man. Uh, this is one of, if not a 24's biggest budget movie, it's financed partially by the Russo brothers, of course, from the Avengers movies. And, Oh, God, it's a lot. So you have Michelle Yao as uh, Evelyn, 
She is a laundromat owner. She's a Chinese-American immigrant. She has her husband, Wayman, played by Kehoe Kwan, who you might know as Short Round from the Indiana Jones movies, and Stephanie Su, uh, who is a theater actress who is coming in as her daughter, uh, as her daughter Joy, I should say. Where do we begin with this? Okay, so Evelyn is kind of a screw-up. Uh, she's done a lot in her life. She hasn't done a lot in her life, and it's led her to this point. She and her husband have kind of a let's call it what it is, the failing marriage. He wants to get divorced and she won't listen. Uh, her daughter is queer. He, she is trying to get her to accept uh, her new girlfriend, Becky, who in this movie is played by uh, Tally Medell. She deals with overwhelming customers like uh, Jenny Slate. She has to deal with an IRS inspector played by uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And all of that is enough until her husband starts acting weird. And it turns out her husband has been overtaken or, you know, kind of mind merged, so to speak, with a alpha version of himself from a different universe to basically explain, hey, there's a whole, not a multiverse, a many-verse out there. There's a great darkness coming out there, and you, Evelyn, you know, laundromat owner, you're going to help us save it all. And she goes, I'm just going to walk away. And then there's some stuff that happens, and then she gets dragged into it, and she learns to transcend herself across multiple universes. There's one where she's animated, where she's a chef, where she is a famous actress and not married to her husband, and that's just the beginning of it. Uh, it is weird. It is wacky. It is completely unpredictable. Noah, before I rant and rave and hoot and holler about all of this, uh, we've been talking about this for a while. It was on our most anticipated list, which if you guys are curious, you can check out that whole mini episode uh, somewhere on our channel as well. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Was it worth all of it? Brandon, more Michelle Yeoh as a leading lady, please. Like, please, please, please. Thank you, Daniels, for giving us this spectacle of a film to to cherish and worship right now in its present state, but also in the years to pass, reflect on it and just talk about all the just amazing moments that it had, all the inventiveness that is behind it. Um, it's a movie that I think uh, it's receiving acclaim across the board from everything that I've seen. Like I can't think of a, of a harsh critique that I've read um, regarding this film, but yeah, it, it was the movie that I was prepared to wind me, and it had me floored. It had me, Brandon, I didn't expect this film to pull so much out of me. Uh, because when you're watching it, you're like, whoa, all, <laughs> whoa, all of a sudden I thought I was doing my taxes, but now I'm watching Wayman Wang, um, who last time I saw was in Temple of Doom as Short Round. You're telling me he's fighting off these security guards with a fanny pack filled with aquarium rocks? Like, what? And that is just one of the film surprises that it packs in a story that is uninhibited in terms of what kind of things it can invent just because it's, it's working on, it's working in film. Like I agree with some of the reactions that said like it, it is mindful of the medium of the art being film, right? It takes like the, the framework of, of a film, you know, having X shot, having X location, having X prop and having X actor wear this costume and tells the story while shifting every single thing about those elements. And it's so powerful. Um, Brandon, watching it, what was the first moment that made you go like, what the hell is this? <laughs> In a positive way. I was it the weenie, fi weenie fingers? No, it was way before the weenie fingers. And you know what? For any of you out there who have seen any of the everything everywhere spoilers without context memes, they are both doing it justice and not even the start. Uh, let's just say hot dogs, raccoons, butt plugs. It's just the start of it. Um, God, what was the first moment? I bet you Odyssey's not going to let us <laughs> write a review with butt plugs. Butt plug Odyssey. It's a word. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. We love you. Um, please don't fire us. Uh, as far as the movie as a whole, I, 
Noah, do you remember when we were talking about Tick, Tick, Boom? And Sam and I were over the moon about it. And you were even more over the moon about it. Do you remember the feeling that you got watching that movie? Yes. That is how I felt watching this movie. It is nearest to a perfect movie that I have seen in a, at least three years. I think the, lo- the nearest I got to was like Spider-Verse in eighth grade in 2018. But this is, I don't have many flaws with it because the more I thought about this movie, and again, credit to Daniels for directing, writing, producing it as well. Every second that I felt, oh, something isn't working, it's tied to the movie. There is a sense of randomness and spontaneity that it, the sense of controlled chaos that in any other movie should not work. And yet, every single time I think something isn't working, I think about it for another five seconds and go, just go with it. Because you're enjoying the characters and the acting and the framing and the action and the world building. And all of it is just overwhelming. And yet, it all comes in this weird you know, multiversal soup that shouldn't work. And yet, I was eating all of it up in you know a matter of seconds. Uh, Michelle Yeoh. Get, she made this interview recently where she gets she said, oh, I get to do everything in this movie. And she does. She does the action and the emotion and the comedy. And they're singing in it, too, which is great in it. And, like, there's every angle of her character. But also, at the very core of it is a woman who just wants something to be able to do with her life and wants connections and has kind of lost her way in discovering that through a lot of generational trauma between her and her dad, who we should mention was played by the legendary James Hong, who's also great in this movie. Um, her daughter, Stephanie Hsu is great. Uh, she plays a really different character as we go through the movie, but the layers in their mother-daughter relationship are wonderfully complex, and I, I teared up over a rock, Noah. I teared up over a rock. I cannot say why, but I teared up over a rock. Leave it to the Daniels to have myself and my co-host here tearing up over, over inanimate objects, whether it be a rock, a piñata, or you name it when you finally go watch this movie. But A raccoon, even! <laughs> Like for you and I, I'm going to be like, I understood that reference. But when you go watch that movie, like, ugh, yeah, that's, that's one of those inside jokes or one of those, um, you know, without context spoilers that once you explore the movie, you're going to be pretty blown away. Um, this movie shatters expectations. Like very plainly said, it is, it is not something to just go check out and walk away from this movie sits with you. It sticks with you. You look back on it. And yeah, some people say that this will be one of the movies that becomes a lot of people's favorite movie of all time. Damn well made my like top of the year already, you know, being in April, I know we're going to be talking about this once we wrap up the year. Um, relationships here that are studied are between um, husband and wife who have a failing marriage um, and struggling communication, uh, a mother and daughter, again, with, with struggling communication there, uh, like Brandon says, generational trauma and being, being an immigrant in the U S and kind of accepting the life that you had to live, but still having dreams that you had to shelf or, you know, not even realize that you're shelving, but just be becoming routine in your ways and forgetting how imaginative your life can still be. Um, and and the idea of, sorry, just super quick, the idea of finding your place in the universe, but also being an immigrant and finding your place in this new world, it all ties together in this weird multiversal soup. Paired with an everything bagel. <laughs> However, how they nothing tied more. in and every nothing more. Fine, Brandon. Hands up. Hands off the keyboard. Um, this movie is going to sit with us for a while. And I think that we have only brushed the surface of talking about its high points. If you're looking for martial arts, <laughs> even involving some, some sex toys, involving um, some weenie fingers, Glitter. involving 
involving some glitter. Um, if you're looking for heads exploding into confetti, if you're looking for, you can insert, like, if you're looking for X paired with X, <laughs> this movie has it. The wackiest of elements co- combined for, um, for scenes. And that, is, and that is the weird insanity beauty of this is that you might be hearing that if you have not seen the movie and going, that doesn't sound like my thing at all. And here's the thing. One, it totally is. Two, the actual themes of the movie, I think by the end of it, overtake any of the wackiness, which I think is what makes it so beautiful, is that, yes, there's randomness, but it matters because you are there and connecting with people. And number three, again, it's tailor-made into the script. So, like, if anything wacky is happening, you're like, no, they should be doing that because that's what's going to drive the story even more. And you you wind up rooting for things as strange as, you know, but plug army fights or things like ridiculous things that somehow make all of the sense and poignancy in the world. I mean, from what I can tell, this movie doesn't look expensive, does it, Brandon? It looks expensive to a degree that everything is where it needs to be. How I wanted to say this was, um, for one, it transitions aspect ratios so smoothly. Like oh, when- yeah. When you're getting an action sequence that feels, I mean, that is a martial arts sequence, you immediately watch, you know, like on what would be like this huge IMAX screen. And you're forgetting that the movie didn't start out that way. The movie started out um, in a completely different aspect ratio. But this is this this is how you make the wise choice between how to shift in and out of that and telling or using a multiversal story to work in that element just goes to show how creative the Daniels were when working with this and behind their entire production team, because who knows who were involved in those conversations. Um, this is a movie that I'm definitely going to rewatch between now and our next recording, because I need to go and just experience all the joy. And I'm not talking about Joy Wang, who is <laughs> uh, Evelyn's daughter in this film, right. all the joy that you took out of this movie, even after the first watch and guaranteed I didn't get enough or guaranteed I didn't even pick up all the pieces. So I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to check out the tricks that the camera lays in here or the types of, yeah, like you say, like story beats that maybe you didn't think were as heavy, but a rewatch would give them even more emotional weight. Um, James Hong, I thought I recognized that voice. I had yeah. to look on the IMDb real quick because that is Poe's father from Kung Fu Panda, the endearing father who's like, just stay home and make ramen with me, Poe. Um, he plays uh, <laughs> in his multiversal forms. Um, should I mention? I'm not going to mention that. I mean, okay, everyone in this movie has a multiversal form. That's okay. not a spoiler. Fair, fair. Okay, in his multiversal forms, he has the range to stretch into, like, these different iterations of his, you know, grandfather character, father to Evelyn. Um, 95. In, in his basic form, he's a hilarious character to watch playing the, like, grumpy grandpa who Evelyn feels she has to like respect his outlook on life while silencing her daughter's expression of self. That was something I did not expect from this movie at all, but wow. they. T- I do want to quickly address my two very, very small negatives with this, just to be the critic that I am. Number one, I think the everything all at once of it all angle, if that is dissuading you again, we would implore you to give it a shot. But again, if you're looking at it from a purely narrative level, it's not as streamlined as, say, you know, a Marvel Cinematic Universe or, like, other multiversal storytelling we've gotten. Like, there is a lot of it. It goes in a lot of different directions. And if you are trying to keep up, I could totally understand if it gets way too much away from you. And I get that. Number two, uh, Jenny Slate's character. I have heard some people in the Jewish community 
really criticized that you have a character named Big Nose, played by a Jewish actress who gets no other name and no other real character development beyond just being a villain. Uh, I agree. It did not ruin the movie in one aspect to me, but it is a negative portion that I wish that Daniels had actually given just the slightest bit more attention to. Like, just a name would have been nice. Pretty funny because uh, if you watch this in theaters, you'll see that there's a trailer for Marcel the Shell, which is a character that she... Yeah, which looks great! Which is a character she'll be voicing, so when she... When she appeared on screen, I thought, oh, oh, she's in this movie. That's pretty great. Um, she has a, who I need to avoid spoilers. This movie just packs so much you want to talk about. Uh, Brandon, let's talk about Jamie Lee Curtis. How, how did, she, how did her performance really translate to the, to the screen for you? Transformative. Like it's unlike anything she's ever done. She gets to again be a lot of different things. And I will admit some of them work better than others, but every time she's interesting and knows what she's asked to do right there with you when i first watched this trailer i thought she was just kind of kind of be the karen of the story who's kind of just like you didn't file your taxes why is this voice from monsters inc um i just imagine (laughs) that's who i imagined she'd be um and then the film just lets you know nah like she's a threat so go ahead and go ahead and sit with that um this movie introduces a new element called jumping i think it's called like alpha jumping or something like that jumping verse jumping and so what it is is like the character who wants to verse jump which if you've seen sense eight it's like bring in attributes from your other self and bring it back to your present self it's doing like the most statistical like unprobable thing that you can imagine leads to hilarious sequences of these characters doing absolutely not what you'd expect and that's why this movie surprises at every turn it's literally scripted that these people will be doing x activity to transform themselves and you have to be ready to just be blindsided by every single time they do that and like evelyn we have to be blindsided by that to just be like yeah this makes no sense but you gotta go with it to go through the thing and you're gonna have fun doing it at least a little bit do you think we have the same rating for this we very well might. Uh, I want to go to you first. <laughs> I have said a lot of what I wanted to about this film. I'm sure there are so many other conversations I will love to have with any listeners, any family, any friends who want to talk about this movie. Hell, once it's ready to be um, streamed, I'll probably have viewing parties with this movie. It's a 10. And I think that that speaks to how it talks about, you know, life's struggle and the pursuit of your dreams, even across multiversal lives it's tying to family and the bonds that we hold with our loved ones was loud to me um and so to put it simply this is a movie that i'm going to be probably running to theaters to go rewatch again and again and again until i have no more tears or until i need to eat something and then go do it again brandon over to you well you can eat popcorn you know what? I damn well can, and that is because <laughs> I'm awesome. Listen, listen to this. That is popcorn, baby. We are the popcorn club over here. In honor of our 25th episode, that is the best joke that we've had on this show. Over to you. Yeah, for me, uh, Daniels have made a movie that is boldly ambitious, but also really poignantly intimate in every th- and everything in between of that. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, Stephanie Sue, and Kehui Kwan who I am really just begging gets an Oscar nomination come next year. I think this is such a great comeback performance from him and gets really to the heart of the movie. It is a movie about finding yourself and finding purpose, but that doesn't feel preachy and that manages to shroud itself in, ev- and again, everything all at once, but in a way that feels 
easy to comprehend, easy to jump into, and it's just a freaking roller coaster of nonsense that will also have you tearing up at the end for its characters and just rooting for every second of it. I don't give tens. This is a ten. What a f***ing movie. What a movie. And I know people are going to regard them with such high acclaim now that they've done this. And I hope nobody's asking immediately the question of what's next, because this is plenty. This is plenty to talk to for a while. Do you imagine if they just did these two and walked into the sunset? Just like, we did our two. It's fine. Um, just for clarification, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once is playing in wide release right now. You can all go see it. You all should. Again, if you're prone to like flashing lights or multiversal storytelling or anything like that, maybe not. But otherwise run to see this we are begging you and we will be talking about it a lot during the year great mention of the flashing lights and like fast sequences there is one that i felt was a visual in the third act yeah in the third act this scene lasts several seconds but it is it is a lot and it's like it's fast switches and it is a lot of blinding lights and if you at all have any um like significant reactions to those just be aware of that moving into it thank you for mentioning that i think that that's important to mention uh, we've got two shows to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to be t- getting to all of the Moon Knight shenanigans later on. But first and foremost, uh, we figured we'd finally wrap up the first season of Amazon's The Legend of Vox Machina. If you want to check out our first review for that, I believe it's episode 22. Check that out. We were both very high on it. In case you need a refresher, it is Critical Roles, Amazon, Animated, Fantasy, Orcs, you know, uh, Magic Powers, all that shenanigans. When we last left off, again, we will be getting into all of the spoilers for this season. So if you've not watched it, just be warned. When we last left off, we met Percy's long-lost sister, Cassandra. Uh, we noticed that she is in the care of the Briarwoods. And from there, we now have another angle to the idea of taking down the Briarwoods. We have a familial connection. There's more stuff with the, oh, I believe it's the Sun Tree with uh, Keyleth and her connection to that. Uh, Pike comes back in a very big way uh, in regards to learning her powers. And her relationship with Grog is still wonderful. And then, of course, we get the big battle at the end with the Briarwoods versus our team. And a lot of revelations with Percy that I really, really want to get into. Uh, Noah, over to you first. We had a lot of thoughts going into the first season of Vox Machina. We didn't really have much experience with Critical Role, but we both had a very fun time with the first half. In my opinion, the second half is better. What did you think? Brandon, I'm so happy that we have two different sides here because I think in our first review, I was more so reluctant to be on board with every single character because I had that question of, you know, what is Percy's shtick? Like, other than being a gunslinger, you know, is there anything there to latch on to? Whew! Second half of the season is that part of his story to last. What I tell you, I love how deep they dive into his character. And I hope that, you know, we just were able to understand uh, each and every one of these characters on a more personal level, just with the more seasons that come out, because I think season, the second half of season one really did a service to Percy as a character and some new characters that we'll be revealing here in our second half of the review. Um, but no, there's a whole lot more action I saw in the second half, uh, a whole lot more blood, a whole lot more darkness and, uh, you know, dark themes and elements being introduced here uh, in an animated show where I think approaching it, I wasn't as ready for the serious uh, subjects, but the way it incorporates them, I think definitely work with the vibe of the show. Of course, it is still all lighthearted and it helps that it it keeps that nature with Scanlan, who just will bust out as a bard should just bust out into whatever kind of tune or melody he can create for the situation. And uh, somebody with that kind of attitude on the team, I think, like elevates how how much fun you have just watching the series. So. A big comment for me is that this is just a lot of fun throughout, you know, whether it's struggling between familial relationships that are estranged for some years, or it's grappling with the fact that there might be a demon possessing one of your best friends. It goes there and it, and it handles it all so well. Um, 
I keep on wanting to say season two, but it's the second half of season one. What are some high points from you, Brandon? Where do I even begin? Because again, I like the second half better. The stakes get bigger. The ideas get bigger. Again, the character moments get, I think, not better, but visceral. I think there's a lot more proper emotional weight to it all. Granted, that's where we go with the series and the third of the Briarwoods, who I guess I'll start with that. I like the revelation of the Briarwoods, that kind of idea of, you know, evil being in service to a greater evil and that kind of cycle just continuing more and more. The idea that Percy for so long views them as one thing and it becomes a completely different thing in two separate ways and that the Briarwoods is his servants are one other thing. And then, of course, we get the, you know, Orthox demon saga in the very last episode, which I definitely want to get into. But I like the idea of the Briarwoods being not the evil we think they are. Matthew Mercer and Greg Griffin are doing wondrous work with the voice acting here. They're reveling in this sort of, you know, arcane magic of it all. And it's just a pleasure to watch them. Uh, I will say as far as another highlight, you know, again, we're getting the spoilers, Keyleth's near death. Uh, I panicked. I did not want to see that. And But then that whole end of episode 11, when, you know, Pike vanishes away and they're stuck in, you know, the dark room for whatever it is. I was heartbroken at that. Assembling a team like this, you know, everybody has their strengths, their weaknesses and abilities. Um, for Pike, Pike was astral projecting in and was able to fight with the team. But when she lets them know, like, hey, at any point, this connection could be severed and you might really need me. Kaylith is dying and Pike is gone. She's no longer channeling in. And yeah, as an audience, you're sitting there and your heart is racing just as fast as these friends because you don't know what her fate's going to be. You weren't prepared for one of these characters to fall so suddenly. But when they do, it's like everything slows down. And that's where I think it gets pretty uh, intense just as a watcher. But you sign up for that with this show. Like you're, you're strapping in for it and you're ready for an adventure, which I'm so happy it delivers on that. Pike is pretty easily one of the most powerful, I think, on the team. Oh, by um, far. Everybody has their own kind of distinct encounters to be uh, dealing with at the time. But the way that Pike holds off Lord Silas, I was so impressed by because um, Pike's, Pike's, of course, literally a small character, but what she brings to the battle is like, of course, healing, but also enhancements to everyone's weaponry. And she is just like a beam not so much a beam of light, actually, because that's Kaylith, but she's just a beam of of just pure strength. And I love her pairing. Uh, we mentioned it in our first half of this. Her pairing with Grog is some of the best like duo moments you'll get out of the series. And that is from beginning even through the second half of that season. I think that goes to a larger thing that I just love about the series, which is the idea of you can easily pair up nearly every character with another. And the comedy is gold between them. They just have such a fantastic back and forth sense of yes camaraderie but also kind of want to tear each other apart to them like yes grog and pike obviously like love and respect you know vex and vax and that same thing scanlan and percy towards the very end you can make that argument uh keyleth and vex every character you can niche match one another and as the series goes on and i found more in season two you know once we've actually gotten to explore more of the stakes and more of the world in itself I found that more of the characters worked better with one another to the point where when Keyleth nearly dies, I thought, well, that's one part of the equation that goes away. And I don't want this whole castle to fall as a result. This is another group of misfits that I think don't have a defined leader. Like, sure, per this is Percy's adventure for the majority of the season one. But there are times where they all look to each other and they're like, they can call on Percy to just like pick himself up and really decide for the team what they're going to do. But in equal parts, I think they turn to Vex. And so I would say that those two are probably like the, the default heads of this group, but that's only, I think when they have to 
make a quick decision that relies on their, their brains or their strategies. Like, cause I can, I can easily see other members of this team leading dependent on the adventure. You know, if, if it plays to a particular character strengths of which they have many and there's a variety, um, I think that's going to allow for different characters to be elevated in different seasons. Uh, I want to see more. Like after this series ended, I was like more, more, like more adventures, more of this fantasy world, more of this, you know, whatever critical role is uh, taking charge with in this series. I want to keep watching. I'm so, I'm so into this. So yeah. Let's hop into those last two episodes then, because I feel like that's going to be where the bulk of our discussion lies. Um, you know, obviously we get the big fight, we get the stuff with the ziggurat and then Percy turns on the group and for me personally, I knew that idea was coming of just, you know, whatever is taking over Percy is going to take him over fully at one point, And then we finally get that. I love the back and forth between Percy and forgive me, I'm forgetting the demon's name, but I love the back and forth between them. There's actually a piece of artwork that I saw that kind of represents the sheer size and scale and overwhelmingness of this demon taking him over. And I love the idea of Cassandra not being the cliche, you know, oh God, I'm the sister. Like I have to pull him out of this. Like it's all of them all at once. And I like the idea of Percy having to fight that one last battle on his own. And this is after the the big bad of the season is taken down. The Briarwoods, for all intents and oh, yeah. purposes, are, you know, they're unable to channel into their powers. One of them is held dead. And you're you're watching this and you're just waiting for, oh, I wonder what this last episode is going to be. Because if the big bad was defeated right before this, oh, is this just going to be like kind of, oh, we're all just kicking back in the castle. Family's good. No. It's the next, the next battle immediately. Which, to be fair, would make sense because the first two episodes were out of the Briarwoods here. They were just like a contained adventure, or so we thought. Or so we thought, Brandon. Um, sticking to this, this demon scene though, I was happy we got a zombies episode, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to stick right now with my mind on the demon because, uh, what's going on here is Percy has always been, like I said, the gunner of the group and he's the inventor of that machine that he's created. Um, and, it's through use of this of this gun and eliminating those who wronged him and his family in the past he is giving so much power to this this vengeance this spirit of complete revenge and i think that the way that they turn that into an entity into a character which is the demon uh had me had me just enjoy watching it all unfold because here's a character who you were looking at as the leader and he's the one turning his rifle to them and um you know expecting them to yes fight back not fight back they don't want to kill each other it's such an intense battle because that's what it is the stakes are do i kill do i kill one of my best friends or do i let them get strong enough to kill me or themselves like ah they kept you i think sweating even through the last episode because for one thing like You've seen Percy be a badass, but you have not seen him with power. And when you realize that, you realize, oh, yeah, he's been kind of holding back this entire time. What happens when he doesn't? There's two other things. One, I love that moment of Vex putting her arm around Percy and just like, it's okay. Like, I know that she and I know that she's talking about, like, it's okay that, you know, you're trying to do this. I always thought it was her making, like, the ultimate sacrifice. Like, oh, God, we're going to see Vex sacrifice herself to, like, save Percy's humanity. That's not what happens. But I was fully ready to embrace that. And I love that direction of it. The other thing I wanted to mention is somehow Delilah not being dead after being shot twice in the back, but whatever. But after that whole, whole thing goes down, we see Cassandra deliver the final blow. Just like, yeah, you could forgive her. Like, that's great. But like, I was held hostage for 10 years. That was her revenge to enact. You know, if we would have saw Percy do it, it, it would have felt, um, un- it would have felt I mean, gratuitous. 
maybe deserved because yes, we've been sitting with the character of Percy throughout the season, but then understanding Cassandra's torture and her backstory, that's when you're like, this was your tormentor. So you eliminate that threat. I love that Scanlan is, <laughs> he's definitely the perv of the group, but he is after everyone. Like uh, one of the, one of my favorite parts from Scanlan had to be uh, during Caleb's almost death scene. Um, Vex remembers that there is a remedy that Caleb had once used involving spit and maybe like some stuff around on the ground. <laughs> so he tries to mimic it. And Scanlan, he's like, Scanlan, give me a song. And Scanlan's just like, uh, take this mud and spit, make some healing shit. <laughs> make some healing shit. <laughs> I, I love that this series Only incorporates Scanlan. just random tunes, random music, because when you have a bard on your, on your team. Sam um, Rigel needs to be praised. I don't know if he comes up with all the music for this, but I'm giving him credit right now. <laughs> At the end of the season, the kingdom that Vox Machina is in service to uh, steps, it transitions from being um, a monarchy and it becomes like a republic. And so there is a tease of one of the enemies that they defeated in one of the early episodes. I'm looking up their name and it looks like it's Brimsafe or Brimsafe? It's David Tennant's dragon character who I just, I forgot the name. Yeah, you see this character, this dragon that they defeat and it's kind of what earns them the right to defend this Iman, the kingdom. And... (laughs) Where I thought, oh, cool, they decided a dragon. You know, we're going to move on to other other enemies here. Oh my gosh, this had this this had the same ending of Arcane, where in Arcane you're watching a rocket fly towards a room full of um, uh, dipl- diplomats or you know uh, politicians, yeah. deciders of the city. In the same vein, at the end of Vox Machina, we see a troop. It is four colossal sized dragons heading straight for the kingdom and then the series over and all we have is Kalith, you know starting to sweat and feel all the th- all the threatening energy that's around her and then we have um vex who seemingly is having visions or something is impacting her and it's a lot of things just thrown on the table and then the series is over because that's that that's how they got me and so we are looking out for what the season two details will include I will fully admit, I think that Arcane, I'm glad you brought up the Arcane comparison because I think that ending is a little bit better because by that point, you've been through such heartbreak and convolutions with everything that by that point, you're just squeezing in your gut in your seat, like as a result of that. Whereas the dragons to me felt like, oh yeah, of course, like there's a whole fleet of dragons out there that want to kill the kingdom. And I love the way they build up both the king and Keyleth's threat of just like, oh crap, we're screwed. I will admit it's a little bit, you know, a little bit of a last minute change, like just like, okay, yeah, we all forgot about that. It's a big threat. Like You're setting up for season two, but I didn't mind. I love the destruction of a sanctuary. Like the story of Halo Reach is like one of my favorites. I hope that that's not the route that they take, but my expectations so far are just this dragon click is like, you killed the Iron Storm. As I'm reading, that's what his name is. You killed the Iron Storm and we're here to just destroy you. And so I hope we get a lot of mayhem uh, with those dragons approaching. But if it means the destruction of the kingdom... It wouldn't be the first time I watched a dragon do it, so I'm ready. Like, how poetic would that be of that idea of, like, we finally saved, like, our like our best friend's homeland, we come back heroes, and then all of a sudden you've brought the destruction with you. I think that's a really interesting take for season two. I think if that happens, like, imagine the, the first episode of the season, 
there's, you know, the dragons attack and then we cut to like a year later and it's like all decimated and it's like this post-apocalyptic thing. How much does that weigh on our characters? A lot of change that you can do here with, uh, with characters who are stretched in so many different ways. Two of the big threads that we're still left with is the weird magic canceling orb that the whispered one left behind that sucked up the holy man. Uh, that's totally not coming back in the future. I'm terrified of it. Uh, and also, uh, what's it, Dr. Ripley, voiced by uh, Kelly Hu, who we see for about two episodes and then just runs away. She's a key character of the Briarwoods and to Percy's family. I have high hopes that we see her back. I love what Kelly Hu brought to the role, and I think she's a really interesting character you could do more with. And that orb is terrifying. It ripped an entire being of a person off just by being within maybe a couple of feet of it. So whatever they do with that, I hope it ends up looking cooler than just a floating orb. <laughs> but regardless of how it looks, it is a uh, a means of destruction. So let's see how that carries over. Also, I 100% still ship Vax and Keyleth, but that's a whole other story. Anyways, on to our ratings for season one of Vox Machina. Noah, over to you. Eight and a half. I think this series is what you need to sign up for if you're looking for engaging story, um, diverse characters, great action. And when I mentioned the visuals earlier, that that does stand true. Uh, we have di- multiple settings here across different episodes, different types of enemies. I mean, if you're a fantasy fan, this is going to be like your baby <laughs> because um, you'll enjoy zombies. You'll enjoy the powers connected to nature. We have assassins. It's just, they pack so much in this and wrap it up with a delightful little bow um, that is the the friendship amongst our characters. So um, if you're watching this with friends or you have a crew that you can ask to watch this with you, hell, we'll be your crew. <laughs> Reach out to us. Um, I'm confident you can look at every one of these characters, place yourself, and also be like, this is you, ex-friend. This is you, other friend. Um, and that's always fun to do. So this is this is definitely a series to enjoy. If you want Lord of the Rings meets Guardians with really incredible animation, with really graphic fight scenes that are also really just, again, speedily well cut and done, with a cast of characters who are, I think, never sidelined and only get more developed as the season goes on, you will love this show. I truly mean, again, because we are both coming from a place of we don't know critical role, like, this show doesn't need you to. It ne- it only needs you to understand its characters, and they are so easily likable and understandable. As Noah said, you can put yourself in the shoes of any of them and find something to relate to and, and just adore and appreciate. For me personally, I still think, you know, either Pike or Percy are the best characters in here. But again, that's a whole nother thing. But again, like it's visually great. The score is great. Like it's just a great, fun fantasy show that I'm so glad dropped in, chunk, dropped in chunks week by week. And I hope Amazon keeps that strategy going to season two. There is a season two confirmed. We probably should have mentioned that up front. Uh, for me, this is a solid eight and a half. I would have given it higher. But again, some of the world building feels a bit murky going forward. But it's a ton of fun. And we would absolutely, if the spoilers from our last 20 minutes have not annoyed you as much, go watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. The whole thing is there. Uh, we are talking Oscar Isaac in the new Moon Knight series, which now has two episodes uh, streaming on the Disney Plus platform that Brandon and I will be covering today. Uh, this is going to be sort of early impression. Um, what do we get from Oscar Isaac in his introduction to the MCU? Yeah, we weren't cool enough to get the first four episodes for uh, press, but we're happy to watch the first two as they are. Hey, uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're, we're building up that critical acclaim, whatever it's worth. Uh, Moon Knight, this is created by uh, Jeremy Slater, who, of course, uh, we actually mentioned early in the episode, Umbrella Academy. He's responsible for that. Uh, he also worked on that Fantastic Four reboot. We're not going to talk about that. Um, but this is starring Oscar Isaac as 
Initially, uh, Stephen Grant, who was initially, quote unquote, a British tour guide slash store clerk, or at least he wants to be a tour guide. His boss, you know, makes it incredibly difficult for him. Uh, he's very shy, very meek, but also just, you know, likes talking to people. He tries to, you know, get a date with a girl at work, you know, but he's kind of just going about his life doing what he does until, uh, you know, some of his sleep apnea becomes more than just sleep apnea. He starts waking up in places. He starts having these really vivid, monstrous dreams. Uh, and then he comes into contact with a cult leader named Arthur Harrow, played by Ethan Hawke, of all people. Basically, the idea is that Stephen has in contact the scarab that has some kind of mystic power to some Egyptian gods that are apparently real now. The big reveal, Mark is not alone. He actually has a separate personality. He is suffering from dissociative identity disorder uh, named Mark Spector, who is an American mercenary who has been going out at night and basically beating the crap out of people. Uh, and now it's the two uh, it's the two identities kind of uh, bouncing off of one another in service to this god who may or may not make himself present and trying to avoid the prying eyes of this cult leader and his followers who can seemingly just mind control out of nowhere. Uh, Noah, over to you. We talked about the first trailer and we thought it looked cool, but we don't have much experience with the character as it is. Going into this, I assume I know your expectations, but like, what did you think of the first two episodes? The opening of the first episode, we had this sort of Cinderella moment where we have Ethan Hawke's character putting on some glass slippers. Um, he completely flips the meaning of glass slipper to, I think, uh, a form that just makes you kind of just shake in your seat and you're like, ooh, what am I watching? Because this already feels like an unsettling kind of series. And it is. I think that there's so much to pull from this, from these first two episodes that you can attribute to being, um, from the horror genre. And I think that these apparitions, these illusions that are coming into, uh, Steven's life, if they can be misread as just being like a horror series, like, cause me, I was watching it and most of the, most of the time Steven becomes overwhelmed by, by the gods who intercept his reality. You're freaking out and you're, you're, I feel like your reactions, any normal person would react just as he did. Um, and just opening myself up to the series, I like that they could toy with that. They could toy within the genre that they're in. Being approached to Egyptian gods, I think that in Moon Knight, for one, Oscar Isaac is a joy to watch. He is so perfectly in tune with being with switching in and out of his role as Stephen Grant, you know, sort of like the the, <laughs> the gift shop owner who is just kind of working at a museum and just wants to get through his days. Hey, he has like a small date set up on the weekends and that satisfies him. He's happy when he goes home, he's surrounded by sand in his bed and he's chaining himself to his, one of his, um, one of the support beams in his bedroom. And you just ask yourself why. And in the first episode, I think it is trying to balance introducing you to what Steven's night, like what Steven's waking nightmare is, which is there are periods where he just blacks out and he doesn't remember what he did or what happened or why he's being transported to other places. And we're slowly getting pieces of explanation as to how it relates to this scarab. You know, story-wise, I liked what the first episode does. I think it's important to understand Steven's reality before we're just thrust into this superhero story. Initially, when you're watching it, it, it does play with a lot of reflections with the camera work, uh, which are then revealed to be like a, it's, it's a sign or at least an element that is involved with owning the scarab, with being the avatar for this Egyptian god. Brandon, did you feel that um, Oscar Isaac was appropriately casted in this role, uh, as I do. I have complicated feelings on this, and I I hope that what I've heard that from episodes four and five, that apparently a lot of press people got out of that, those ideas of who is 
of who Mark and Stephen are as a person, that those things are being explored more, specifically the question of Jewish identity, which I know Oscar Isaac has said he has distant Jewish ancestry. There is a mess of a conversation around there, but okay, sure. But that idea of do I think it was appropriately cast, I don't know yet, um, purely from Oscar Isaac's history, but also from what the show's going for. It hasn't really delved into Jewish identity as a whole to uh, to either Mark or Steven's character. Moon Knight is one of the only preeminent major Marvel characters that we have besides like Magneto and the thing. And, you know, we're not getting those characters anytime soon. So like for me, again, as a Jewish person, like I look at this a bit more critically. That being said... I do think as both Mark and Steven and potentially other, you know, uh, parts of the character down the line, I really like what Oscar Isaac is doing with this. He makes Steven so likable. And for context, Steven is very different in the comics as I've read. He's more, you know, kind of Bruce Wayne liked and they changed him to be more of, you know, more of a softy that a lot of the fans have been calling him. And I really like that approach. It makes this great dynamic between Steven and Mark to the point where when we get to the end of episode two, and Mark essentially very violently shuts Stephen out of his brain. It becomes all the more poignant to us as an audience because we're so used to seeing Stephen a certain way and we're so used to getting attached to him as a POV character that I think it really works. And Isaac, I think, is able to really address both aspects of the character in tandem, which I think is really difficult to do. I'll say it uh, pretty plain and simple. I think the CGI is terrible in this series. Unless it's Khonshu. Khonshu looks good. Khonshu does look pretty damn good there is just a there's a chase scene in episode one that yeah. as i was watching it i was like well just you know um collapsing my fingers like an evil villain in front of me well <laughs> i don't know if this is what we want um they're like maybe she hulk took more budget than we thought it did <laughs> They're like, oh, remember that that tree that was holding lumber? Or remember that truck that was holding lumber like four miles up the hill? Oh, no, enemies in front of you, Stephen. What are you going to do? Good thing those trunks came rolling down and whacked them off the hill. I don't know. I think that it was just, it was just, it, it looks poorly. It looks poor. Um, and I'm like, who am I? But still, you know, watching it, <laughs> it just takes me out of it. And I'm like, I'd rather just have him um, have a longer discussion with his reflection or have, you know, revel in the confusion of it all than see this uh, chase scene that I, that is taking me out of, taking out of being so engaged into it. Uh, how did you feel that, how do you feel the action was executed in this series? Do you think it's well done? So far, I'm a fan of the action. I think that uh, it's, it further enhanced just by Steven's funny remarks as he's like, oh, what's going on? Uh, punch here, punch there. Oh, no, you're grabbing me. I think the best action sequence is in episode two with the rooftop sequence. I think that looks really great. I think it's shot great. I think Isaac, and again, I don't know if that's Isaac in the suit. That might be a stunt performer, but I like just how they frame it as being this visceral chase sequence that I hope we get to see more of. But you're right, even in the first episode, the sort of museum sequence is kind of fun. Uh, even the car chase, when it's not a CGI fest, actually looks fairly decent with the cupcake fights and everything uh yes there's a cupcake fight in this so it's hilarious um but yeah like it's one of those where i'm like it's fine i'm waiting to see it really expand but it's cool for what it is as we lead into episode two we are getting a couple more moments with ethan hawk's arthur harrow in the first episode you know as you watch this you'll you'll understand more of like how it relates to the series uh, <laughs> i mean maybe you will maybe i don't even know it yet but his character is sort of he's like a conduit of some sort of uh, God or magical power because he is a, he's basically providing judgment through this God, which we see tattooed on his arm, um, or at least some kind of symbol of following. And he's 
people, he has these followers who will embrace him and take their arms in his. And he decides at that moment, whether this person is, you know, of just standards. And so they can continue living their life or right then and there, they are being judged and they will be dead. They will be left dead. And I think I'm even after finishing episode two, I'm still wondering about the whole, how does he fit in with this? Um, do you still have questions around that, Brandon, or do you think it's informing audience as well around who this Arthur Harrow character is? I hope we get more nuance because for one thing I can say, I think I, I think the reason Ethan Hawke took this role, you know, even though as I make fun of him, it's like, ah, you made fun of Marvel movies for the last five years. Now you're in one. Eh. But like, I think the reason he took this is kind of a similar reason to why Robert Pattinson took on Batman. It's a character who is not locked into the idea of comic book lore conventions and who gets to be very distant, very menacing, but still all the more, you know, crucial to the story. And I think as we see, you know, even that first scene, I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot the glass shoe sequence. Uh, it's a perfect tone setter to the character of just, oh, we're dealing with an insane person. The god that Arthur takes in service as opposed to Khonshu, whatever that dynamic is, I want to like some sort of like weird trippy mind sequence between Khonshu and Ahmed of just like, no, like your disciples of a-hole. Well, your disciples of bigger a-hole, like that kind of thing. Uh, like the idea of the gods and mortals kind of playing along that I hope really transcends the idea of the Mark Stephen and Arthur relationship and makes it a bigger foil. What's a big bummer is the fact that this is six episodes long but uh, it's okay we're getting an hour-long episode each time and they feel that long but what's what's important to me is at least they're moving at least they're going places like by the end of episode two uh yes steven does arrive right outside the pyramids in egypt and so i i can't wait to see how that setting changes what uh steven's character will do for the series um although it is a shame that it's only six episodes I will move on to a better point. Um, this movie, sorry, this series incorporates voiceovers that sound pretty booming from Conchu while Steven or Mark have you, um, are moving in the real world. We have this loud, like, like I say, overwhelming presence that is Conchu while they're, um, in action or while they're doing what have you. Uh, and I actually really enjoyed that. I think that, uh, in the voice, of course, is from F. Murray Abram. It was bringing me back to, I mean, this is one of Isaac's latest, but you know, remember that, that booming, that booming Dune voice as soon as the movie started? Oh yeah. Like that's, that's the vibe that I get. And I love that because it, 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 like I said, it brings me back to the horror genre. Like it, it instills a sense of dread in me when he has something haunting to say, or when he's toying with Steven, it's actually like a little comical. Like you might chuckle at it, but either way, it's such an, it's such a great character in itself um, incorporated with the Steven Mark dual character. I think the first two episodes, there is a great story in there because I love the idea of this is not what it goes, but like if the first episode had ended with that thing of Mark waking up in Egypt and then we start the story, like that feels like the start of a really great chase movie with Egyptian mythology, with Mark's heritage being explored. And the first episode feels like it's good, but it drags too much in the London setting of it all. I feel like we could have gotten as much Steven, but you know, I know it's the goldfish, but like fish out of water type story in Egypt. I feel like that could have been condensed into something really great. We could have started right there in Egypt where we have a confused Stephen who is still coming to terms with this random takeover that happens. Um, and then we have the Mark, the knowledgeable Kanchu expert who knows what his intentions are, or at least we think he does. Um, but let's see if we're being proven wrong because we're only two episodes in. 
I think the next two episodes are going to very much be that idea of, you know, and now obviously slight spoiler for that, Mark is now in control for the time being, but I wish it's like you had said, of like Stephen waking up and just the idea of like, no, Mark, like I know Egypt, I can help you move along, but Stephen being like, well, that's cool. But if I give you the body, like you're not going to let it go. Like that provides some stakes in there. I know I kind of trashed in the CGI earlier, but I will say the suits look good. You know, Moon Knight suit looks cool. Does look pretty great. They Mark and Steven both have their own takes on what the moon suit looks like. And what the hell for the fun of it, I'm going to go ahead and say that regarding MCU Disney plus series, I think that um, Loki still has the better episode one, like the better big bang of the, of the beginning. But uh, I don't think that uh, Moon Knight is, is so far down the bottom. I think that it's maybe close second. They're still cranking out stuff that doesn't immediately have to tie into Captain America or the Avengers. You know, there I don't even think there's a mention of any of our heroes in this series, at least so far. I don't think there is actually, which is actually really interesting. Um, for me, Loki is still the best pilot, but I think this starts on a better note than Hawkeye and maybe Falcon and Winter Soldier, at least in terms of the first two episodes. Uh, again, we'll have to see where this goes along, but it's a strong start. It's got two really compelling performances and characters at its center. The mythology is tantalizing enough to stay behind. If you were skeptical about it enough, I would say watch it, but it's not great right now. Um, and if you are curious, first two episodes are, of course, in Disney+. Plus. We will be trying to get to every two episodes, uh, each new episode of the podcast. So next episode, we'll get to three and four, and then following five and six. So stay tuned for that, uh, and come on this weird journey with us that you know Marvel keeps getting us on. And that'll do it for episode 25 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode and again, 24 other episodes plus our mini episodes and, you know, seeing whatever nonsense we come up with. Seriously, thank you guys. It's been an absolute pleasure and we hope to keep doing this for a long time. And thank you guys for becoming, as Noah calls us, the Colonel Club or so to speak. Uh, needless to say, uh, if you'd like to find us further, why not follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed? Uh, you're probably listening on one of those. Why not follow us on three? You'll get updates on when all of our new shows are posted. And why not follow us on social media? Uh, Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, that's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Noah and I post updates and polls and reviews things all over there as well. So stay tuned for that. I want to, of course, thank my lovely co-host for dealing with me for 24 episodes, Noah Guzman. Uh, Noah, where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? Follow me at Noah's Plotting on Twitter. Right now, I am juggling a community. Uh, I'm juggling a community college production of Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. If you are listening and you are a Phoenix resident, definitely reach out on the Instagram and I will share some ticket info there. Um, as well as on my personal platform. So if you follow me on Twitter, you will be hearing about that show pretty shortly. I'm always in tune with the new stuff coming out in theaters. I make my way to theaters probably twice or three times a week. This week it was four. Um, but that's what I love to do. And Brandon, you stay handling uh, putting up with you for 24 episodes. But really, I'm just enjo enjoying you for 24 episodes. Um, value your conversation and your takes on all these films. And uh, let us know. You know, we're 25 episodes in. And me and Brandon look at each other at the top of each episode and go... Yeah, you know, we're doing it, but let us know, you know, are we, are we doing it? Are we doing, are we doing a pretty good job guys? Or are we doing like, are we steadily declining and you think that slowly we're going to be dust? Um, <laughs> by all means, reach out and let us know how you regard our show. Um, we would love to have some audience inclusion. Two episodes after you're hearing this one, we will be talking multiverse of madness and I cannot wait. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Look, next week's going to be like the Northman and Fantastic Beasts. Like, we're not slowing down anytime soon just because of multiverse. No, we are not. So strap your seatbelts in. <laughs> Hopefully they already have been because we are moving and we are moving fast. 
Summer is going to be weird. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. Uh, follow my work on ASU Odyssey as well. I have my review of the Batman, my review of my tenth anniversary review of the Red Tails, uh, which is Lucasfilm's uh, World War Two movie coming out, and of course all of Noah's content that he's going to be working out that I know things about that you don't know things about. Ha ha. Uh, and follow my band Cablebox at Cablebox underscore Music. That's Cablebox underscore Music on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we've got gigs coming up all through April and May, so stay tuned for information about that. And hopefully when we eventually release music as well, you guys will stay tuned for that. Once again, for the 25th episode of Plot Devices, for myself, for Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices, and we will catch you guys next time.